And I want to remind everyone, I am still collecting your ghost stories for our Halloween night special that we are going to call Dead Air. will be a night to remember, I can tell you that. The ghost stories are coming in, so keep them coming. But tonight, oh my gosh, I'm so excited because we've got a great lineup tonight. I mean, it is a rare treat on the program tonight. Actually, we've got... Nick Groff and Katrina Weidman from Paranormal Lockdown. And I can't wait to start talking to them uh, here in just a minute or two. And then after our bottom of the hour break, Adam Bolger is going to be joining us to talk about the true events that inspired A Nightmare on Elm Street. Apparently, there's a lot more to this than any of us thought before. Uh, So for now, I would like to introduce Nick Groff and Katrina Weidman who really don't need much of an introduction, do they? I mean, they are a couple of the best paranormal investigators we've got right now in the field. But Nick Groff has been fascinated with the paranormal ever since surviving a near-death experience as a child. Now he chases ghosts full-time with the goal of finding new evidence of the afterlife and discovering a breakthrough in paranormal research. Now, after graduating from the University of Nevada with a B.A. in film, Groff made his big break when he co-wrote, co-produced, co-directed, co-edited, and co-starred in Ghost Adventures, the original documentary which aired on the first aired on the sci-fi channel in 2007. Uh, His film was a winner at the Los Angeles film and video festival and was nominated for best feature film at the eerie horror film festival. The documentary served as a pilot for the ghost adventures television series that debuted in 2008 on the travel channel. Groff was an executive producer, co-host and investigator on seasons one through 10. Groff is also the author of the book, Chasing Spirits, The Building of the Ghost Adventures Crew. Now, his partner on Paranormal Lockdown, Katrina Weidman, is a paranormal researcher and investigator, host, producer, and lecturer. She is best known for her role on A&E's hit series, Paranormal State, in which she worked on hundreds of cases of unexplained supernatural phenomena and interviewed thousands of witnesses with the world-renowned Paranormal Research Society from 2006 to 2011. I'm telling you what, these two are no strangers to things that go bump in the night. Now, Katrina Weidman graduated Pennsylvania State University and has been working professionally as a paranormal researcher and investigator since 2006. Her passion for the supernatural began when she was a child living in the historic Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where many locations are said to be haunted. Weidman also hosted Chiller's Real Fear, the truth behind the movies, following Weidman and her team as they traveled the country looking for real-life stories that inspired some of the world's most iconic horror films. And what a treat it is to have them both join the program tonight. Uh, welcome to the show, Nick and Katrina. Thank you so much. 
Thanks. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Man, I've been watching Paranormal Lockdown. I got to say, you two are very brave for what you do going in and being locked in a location for 72 hours. I mean, that is that is no small thing. Uh, I'm really curious because, you know, watching you two stay in these locations for 72 hours, I, I, I'm starting to wonder every time I watch one of your episodes how much this takes out of you uh, to do every investigation uh nick can you let us know i mean it, it, does it drain you or does it excite you absolutely both everything is the thrill of trying to discover something new in this field and putting yourself into a location not only the environmental elements that do physically wear you down as a human being like right now i'm sick from our last location we just investigated and it, it mentally can drain you too there's a whole psychology behind it and when you actually are vulnerable and you're past that 24-hour mark and into the 32-hour mark and the 40 and then you get to 72, it's like everything is like a roller coaster ride. But it's discovering the new evidence that we, we kind of search after that really pushes ourselves to do what we do. And that's why we love it. Mm. Katrina, I'm really curious to hear your take on this as well. Yeah, um, I think it's taken off about 10 years of my life at this point. <laughs> <laughs> It's, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it is draining, you know, I'm not going to lie about that. It is definitely, you know, one of the more challenging things I've done in my life and definitely the most challenging investigations I've had because of, you know, the physical wear and tear we have on our bodies. And, you know, it's not just, you know, um, dealing with the spiritual side of things and how, how much we're putting ourselves out there to experience this stuff. It's also, you know, the buildings themselves, a lot of them are old and decrepit. And some of them don't have running water and, you know, some of them are dusty and dirty and it's just, uh, it's oh. just, you know, we, Nick and I both experienced, like Nick said, he's sick right now, um, from our last investigation. I got brutally sick, um, a couple weeks ago on one of our investigations, um, so it definitely, you know, takes a wear on your body. Mm, I noticed at the Anderson Hotel in Kentucky, uh, that's what I thought of. That was the main thing on my mind watching that entire episode was how are they staying warm? It looked like you guys were just so bundled up and that there was no heat. And I don't know if there was any running water in that place. Um, yeah. So, you know, way to go. I mean, way to really, uh, I guess, put your back into every investigation that you go to. Because, look, I do four hours a night, uh, Monday through Friday. And some people say, well, that's tiring. But looking at you two and everything that you put in, I mean, it looks like you put your heart and your soul and everything you've got into every investigation, putting your uh, uh, personal comfort aside. Yeah, we do. Absolutely. But I think like, I don't know, Nick, I mean, I'm not sure if you'll agree with this. I think you will. But it's like, I think we only have like at each location, we're so lucky to get into. You know, and we're so lucky to be able to do what we do at these places. And I like I would hate myself if I walked away not knowing I put in 110 <laughs> percent. Know? So, you know, absolutely. Yeah, I feel the same. I mean, not even when we're at invest investigating different locations, but even when we're at our own home, Katrina and I will be text messaging each other, calling each other. We'll be theorizing about different things, how we can perfect our, our equipment, make our investigations better, dig deeper into researching. I mean, honestly, we're doing this 24-7. It never like, stops, I've been up all right? all day doing this. 
It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it never, never stops. I, I can relate to that because I'll be trying to go to sleep at maybe three o'clock in the morning and then an idea will hit and I got to get up and I got to go write it down uh, because That's us. Yeah. It, it never really stops. Um, so an interesting investigation uh, that I watch you to do, which I thought came up with some very, um, I, I don't know, another way to describe it, but chilling to the bone uh, evidence was at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, where you captured video of what looks like an entity dragging itself across the floor on the fourth floor. Do you guys remember that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Never forget it. <laughs> Yeah, still I mean, analyzing it. Really, you are okay. Because I wanted to get uh, uh, both of your thoughts on this. I guess, Nick, uh, what did you think when you captured that? Uh, what were your first thoughts that ran through your mind when you thought, oh, "My God, we've captured something here." Yeah, it it was really scary in the moment because we were Katrina and I were, we were in complete darkness, and Rob could only see us on his camera. And I put my camera on the ground, so I I really couldn't see at the end of the hall. And Katrina and I. We turned around, we were looking at the opposite end because we kept seeing these shadows pass by with this, this kind of like window shape uh, that was lighting a little bit of moonlight. Mm-hmm. And it was so weird because the environment changed. Like everything shifted. You could feel like just the air get tighter. My heart started racing. You just felt like something was wrong. And then all of a sudden, Rob starts shaking. He's freaking out and, and he starts saying that there's something on the camera. Katrina and I both turn around. We don't see anything in the darkness. And Rob's panicking. He's like, don't move. There's something there. So what do you know? You know, when we do the replay and he documented something pretty incredible that um, I have no clue how this thing or what it is. We, we literally went to that spot, analyzed it, and it seems to crawl or move into this wall and go right through it. And um, we even looked for drag marks on the ground, and that's what I thought was so interesting. You think that there would be some sort of like connection with whatever this thing was to the ground, you know? But there was nothing. It's almost like it was matter that formed out of thin air and just like evolved into this humanoid figure that started uh, moving across the ground. My God. Uh, Katrina, had you ever seen anything like that before? I mean, you have been uh, investigating the paranormal for, what, more than 10 years now? Yeah, it's been 10 years now. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, I have never seen anything like that with my own eyes or on any piece of footage that anybody's ever shown me. Um, and what I find really interesting, you know, because uh, I've heard the criticism of like, well, how do you guys know you're not hallucinating? You're so tired and you're and you're worn down at that point. So what if you're hallucinating these things? And, you know, a valid point, complete valid point. But here's the thing that gets interesting is our equipment isn't tired. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> the camera never gets tired. Right. Exactly. So, you know, when you're picking these things up on your equipment and it's validating the things you're experiencing or you're feeling, I mean, how do you, I mean, what's the explanation to that? You can't dispute it at that point. Right. right. So it's, you know, and you know what Nick said earlier that he'll never forget get that. And I, I, I mean, I won't either. It, it was, it was such a very odd night that night. And it was, I remember being in that hallway and we were both feeling things. Rob was feeling things and um, we were hearing things, seeing things out of the corner of our eyes. And it was just like, we were in this, uh, you know, confined little tunnel of activity that was nonstop. And uh, then Rob's camera captured what we call the creeper. 
The Creeper. Oh, I love it. <laughs> well, now in the pursuit of capturing uh, indisputable paranormal evidence uh, on Halloween night, you uh, are going to air on TLC uh, your investigation of the Black Monk House. So, I mean, how much of that can you even talk about before it airs? Uh, what was it like? How'd you find this location? I mean, what can you tell me? Yeah, it's it's very interesting, this location. It almost had a draw to us is kind of how we describe it now. It has a different sort of energy and telepathic pool. 30 East Drive has been talked about and researched by us for years, but we never had the opportunity to investigate it. And it's always been off the list, to be honest with you. And not until we did the Hinsdale House in New York mm-hmm. for season one of Paranormal Lockdown, is we started connecting different things that it all happened with stuff following us home. So Katrina and I started having all these things happen in our house and we started to put the puzzle pieces together that there was something bigger happening rather than just another location you investigate and you walk away and you say, okay, that was the spirit of Joe who passed away there and that's who's communicating with us. This was something bigger that we don't fully understand. And yet, and it works in your dream state. It has a telepathic pull. And that's exactly what 30 East Drive in Pontefract, England, the Black Monk House, as we label it, kind of drew us to it by connecting evidence from our own personal homes, our own personal life, and different locations that we've been investigating. And that was the true reason why we went there. So it's really a year and a half in the works. It's almost like a documentary how this Halloween special just kind of unfolds. And you're going to see footage that we've never done before where we show you like personal footage of our own homes or security footage that we've captured our houses tying in the locations i mean it's it's wild how everything just kind of escalated and we confine ourselves to this 30 east drive location in england for a hundred hours to really get to the bottom of confronting whatever this entity was and you'll you'll see how it kind of ripple effects our own life Wow, so you're even going past your 72-hour standard all the way up to 100 hours. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. And and so you guys immerse yourself fully. This is not something uh, that you're doing for the sake of entertainment. Uh, you exactly. almost invite the spirits to, to use your bodies as a tool, to, and they follow you home. And this is like it never really leaves your mind, so much so that it's in, in your sleep. I don't know very many paranormal investigators that are that uh, dedicated. I mean, that that's a level of dedication. I don't know yes. that, that many investigators out there have. Um, so uh, maybe, Katrina, you could tell me a little bit about this. Um, when, when Nick says that this invades your dreams, uh, exactly what is he talking about there? Does this Did this location somehow reach out to you and and give you nightmares or what happened yeah um after we left the black monk house um i had a couple nightmares when we left and the first one i had i remember it very vividly i was uh lucid dreaming so i knew i was dreaming but it was it was uh i was in a really horrific car accident and in my dream um i was dying and which is terrifying enough you know oh Um, yes yes and uh I remember in my dream thinking, Katrina, Katrina, wake up. You know, this isn't real. You have to wake up. And this is the black monk doing this to you. He's he, like, it's trying to fool you. It's trying to mess with you. 
And so I woke up and I was like, oh, oh my goodness, like, that was a very strange dream. Um, and I had, uh, you know, several other dreams after that. And a few weird things happened in my house um, that have still happened, actually. Um, nothing bad, but just, you know, um, feeling like there's like a bully in your house, somebody staring you down, like activity that's not normal for my house. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, I know yeah. that sensation of being watched is a very distinct sensation. I know it well. Uh, yeah. It's like you're being stared down completely. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, whatever this thing is, it, it seems like time and space doesn't really matter. Mm, no, it doesn't. And Nick, I know you've had a near death experience. I've also had a near death experience. Um, so you probably know that on the other side, there really is no such thing as time. It just doesn't exist there. Uh, it's outside exactly. of time. If there is such a thing, um, it's definitely outside of, of time. So that's, wow. I, again, just that you're so immersed, there's no part of your life that your investigations don't touch. It, it's just from top to bottom. This is what you do. This is what's in your blood and even in your dreams and nightmares all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what we wanted to do, especially for this location. You know, it all started in 1966 with the Pritchard family that moved into this house. Mm-hmm. And it was low incoming house that was built in Pontefract, England. And this is where one of the bloodiest battles that took place during the Civil War, kings being executed, a hanging, you know, uh, a noose that would hang people right near the house and legends of this black monk who murdered children. So it's it has this like just stained soil of history that this land was kind of marked with. And I believe, you know, now kind of walking away in the bigger light of this picture is I think all this energy and sometimes we label things as so negative. I think that something was built up over time through different energies that multiplied and created something so sinister now, which is harvesting at this location And now when we talk about time, it can move telepathically and draw certain people to it because it wants stuff like that to enter these locations. So that's what I think. We're dealing with something that you're absolutely right. There is no time in that other dimension. And within our reality, there's every second that that we're breathing, we're passing, you know, we're getting closer and we're, we're taking the next stepping stone in our own personal lives. And I think locations like this, they draw people like Katrina and I to them for certain reasons. And that's what we were kind of figuring out and putting the puzzle pieces together through our own investigation. Mm-hmm. And so it's something else. It's bigger than anything we've ever done before. Well, well that's really saying something coming from both of you, because uh, you've been on so many different, just incredible investigations. I mean, it's almost impossible to keep track of all the places you two have been to combined. Um, and I know, gosh, I don't know if you know about, uh, but I, I have a friend, uh, Barbara Macbeth. She's uh, in a group called the Ghost Investigator Society, uh, one of the first paranormal groups. And something that she said to me off the air at one time, has always stuck with me and that is you know once you start kind of looking for the paranormal it also starts looking for you and the more i hear you two talk about the black monk house the more this is kind of coming to mind like it could be you know the other side knows you're looking for them and then they come looking for you does that scare you at all um yeah i mean on some level but then i think you know, 
uh, we've gotten really good at maybe putting it out of our heads and just focusing on, you know, our tasks because I mean, you know, and this is true for anything in life. You can only control what you can control, um, which is not a lot of things, you know? So you kind of just, you have to, if you're going to be in the field and you're going to do this work, you have to accept that there's going to be things that happen that are out of your control. Mm. Um, it's definitely not a field for control freaks, you know? Definitely not. And definitely not a field for uh, those that are not adventurous. You've got to have an adventurous spirit and be fearless going in, which you two must be. Uh, you know, you you went into the Black Monk house for a hundred hours knowing the history of the place. And so I, I'm just curious, uh, was there any uh, uh, shred of fear going in uh, for either one of you? Yeah, there was for me. I mean, the history and stuff, we logically try to put it out of our heads so we can do our investigation. So we try not to feed into that fear and let it overtake us um, before we try to validate some of our experiences just as a paranormal investigator in general. But there's something about this location that was different. And I think it was because of everything else that's been happening for the last year at our homes, at the Hinsdale House, the tie, the connection through evidence that led us to 30 East Drive, the Black Monk House. There was something that we were dealing with that it wasn't like the four spirits in the house. And once we walk in the house, that's it. It was more like this thing wanted us here, whatever this thing is. It was more negative in nature and it, and it was trying to figure us out, break us down and get us at the right spot when we're most vulnerable to attack us. And that's really where the fear sat deep down in my stomach because sometimes you can't fight those things back physically in our reality. So how do you protect yourself? And it's more like a spiritual war that we're kind of facing and going up against um, and that's that's what I kept thinking about. And it was all those emotions, you know, every step I took through the house when we actually walked in for the first time, it really stri started to strike a nerve with me. And I felt nauseous. I felt sick. Um, Katrina was talking about a case she did five years ago and she had to, you know, take a break and whatnot from another demonic case that she worked on. And it made me start feeling sick, like it was getting to her which was getting to me and it was starting to break me down and I had to snap myself out of it. That it, That's really, truly kind of how these things work that we're realizing. Wow. Uh, I mean, just, just to hear you say that, having been on so many investigations, because this kind of physical effect doesn't happen with every investigation. It really is kind of a rare thing uh, that you would be so physically affected. So, I mean, that had to at least make you hopeful for capturing evidence of the paranormal while you were there. Yeah, I think it was more personal, too. And that was the main reason. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Walking in there, I mean, I'm saying I'm feeling this and I'm feeling that. And there came a moment where I'm like, all right, wait a second. And I told my brain, <laughs> my other part of my brain was like, okay, you're experiencing all these things, but we need to set up equipment and start validating what we're experiencing. Mm -hmm. And then we went into investigative mode. And then the door locks and there's hour one starting and we're like, oh my God, we have a 99 hours left to go. <laughs> oh my God. And that's when the isolation kicks in. And honestly, day two arrives and it, it, it's weird. It's almost like we entered another world and we left earth 
and everything outside was continuous with people going to work and people going to school and so on and so forth. And here we are in this little bubble, this little capsule of a house where we're so isolated that nobody could hear us scream if we wanted to. Oh my God. And that's kind of what it felt like. It felt like another dimension we stepped foot in. Wow, completely outside of the normal waking world. Well, I have my DVR already set uh, to record it because I don't want to miss it, and I'll probably want to watch it a couple of times because when you guys wa- when you watch your episodes, you know, two and three times, you kind of catch things that you didn't catch the first time. So, uh, you know, everybody was asking me, well, why aren't they going to be on for the entire show? You two are very, very busy. You're probably going to head off to another investigation here, probably shortly probably tomorrow so i wanted to just genuinely thank you so much for for coming on the program tonight to talk about what you've done at the black monk house and i will be tuning in and uh just i'll be waiting after my halloween show that's what i'm going to be doing is going to head over to watch paranormal lockdown and the black monk house thank you guys so much Thank you. Thank you Appreciate All it. right. Have a great night, both of you. Uh, and I you hope too. to have happy you Halloween. on another time soon. Yes. Happy Halloween and happy paranormal investigating. <laughs> All right. That is paranormal investigators, uh, Nick Groff and Katrina Weidman of Paranormal Lockdown, a great couple of people and very, very brave. We'll be right back. Well, I'm being told that the audio is, well less than perfect tonight and i'm actually getting a lot of messages from you through the wormhole saying that the audio is pretty bad so i don't know if we're going to be able to carry on tonight Uh, i sure hate not to because we do have fantastic guests for tonight adam bolger who is with us already had a great time with nick groff and katrina weidman sure love talking to those two uh but you know i'm getting messages kind of like this your transmission is very choppy and garbled audio is slightly off sounds like you're underwater uh i even got from dwight he said well it sounds so bad that i have to sign off um and and so i'm you see, getting more and more messages. Uh, you're garbled. The ads are fine, but your feed is not. Uh, so, I guess right now, I'm trying to figure out, do we carry on with this level of audio? You know, me, I'm a perfectionist, and I want nothing but perfect audio. And if we don't have that tonight, then I'm not sure how to proceed. Uh, I am not an engineer. I'm a host. Um, so, okay, I'm... <laughs> I don't know what to do but carry on. So we will carry on for the moment uh, because otherwise I don't know what to do. So I must apologize for the audio issue. It's beyond my control right now. Uh, This is not my area of expertise at all. But we do have Adam Bolger with us tonight, and he is a journalist who frequently writes about the science and culture of sleep. His stories have been on the Huffington Post, The Believer, Gizmodo, and elsewhere, and his interview with Hunter Thompson appeared in the book Ancient Gonzo Wisdom. He was a founding editor of the hyperlocal news network Patch.com, and Adam is a regular contributor to VanWinkles.com, where he writes extensively about sleep, dreams, and wakefulness. 
Well, tonight, Adam will present to you the real events that inspired Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street. And that's why I really hate to not be able to do the show live for all of you tonight, because I have been looking forward to this interview tonight for weeks, weeks and weeks. Uh, This show is in the making. So let me see here. Um, Getting another message from Evil Keith. Uh, Well... Until I'm told we absolutely can't go on, we shall go on. Uh, And I'd like to welcome Mr. Adam Bolger to the program. Uh, Adam, thank you for joining the program tonight. Well, thank you for having me, Heather. Well, you sound really good over there. Thank you. Uh, So, you know, I'm really curious about this. Uh, Can you back off your mic there just a little bit? I can hear you breathing on it. that better? Much, 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 much better. Thank you. Uh, I'm really curious about this work that you've done and the, the, just the simple fact that there are real events that inspired A Nightmare on Elm Street. How did you even discover that that movie was based on real events? Well, I'm a huge fan of uh, 80s kind of ephemera and any sort of intersection that pop culture has with real life will always kind of fascinate me. And... Um, Wes Craven would often, uh, Wes Craven, of course, is the director of the Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, the first movie, and the creator, Freddy Krueger. He would often talk about a real-life story that he came across in newspapers that inspired um, the Nightmare on Elm Street films. Um, And I was really interested in fleshing out what he had said, uh, which was a pretty simple little story. And he always said it was very obscure and that uh, it was a series of um, small news stories in the Los Angeles Times that the journalists had not connected the dots on and that it took him to string together into one narrative. And um, what I think he – what he said was that – there are these uh, immigrant like teenagers who were being uh, chased in their dreams by some kind of uh, mysterious intruder, um, and they were trying to keep themselves awake uh, just to stay alive. And their families all thought that they were crazy, uh, and they were trying to get them to sleep. You know, uh, and they went through really crazy um, links in order to stay awake. Like they would start hiding coffee machines in their closets, uh, unbeknownst to their families and so forth. Yeah, that Uh, was a part about Nightmare on Elm Street, because just like everyone else when I was a kid, you know, we watched Friday the 13th, we watched Halloween with Michael Myers, and of course, Nightmare on Elm Street comes out. So, you know, even though I think I was, gosh, less than 10 years old, but (laughs) yeah, we're going for it. We're going to watch this. And that was the part that really, um, there's always something about it that'll stick with you, any good horror movie right there's going to be one scene or one little thing in there that really kind of sinks its claws in you (laughs) and doesn't let go and that was the thing it it was uh i believe well my namesake uh the girl um heather she had the coffee pot in her room and just wouldn't do wouldn't she would do everything she possibly could to keep from going to sleep yeah and i have insomnia
insomnia. Uh, I've had <laughs> insomnia all my life. I mean, since I was really little. And I don't know what it is. Does that switch in the mind that tells you, okay, now it's time to go to sleep and the day is over with? I don't have that. So right. I always thought, gosh, if only I could just give you what's my mind a little bit of my mind and then you wouldn't have to worry about all that coffee you'd be awake <laughs> i have the opposite problem see i'm yeah, trying right. to fall asleep all the time you uh, know some sleep experts actually say that if you try to stay awake that it's a great way to fall asleep <laughs> that it takes the stress out of your mind because you, you you start stressing out and feeling anxious that you can't fall asleep mm -hmm. and of course that will just keep you up but if you say to yourself no by gum, I'm going to stay awake. All of a sudden, pressure's off and you'll just fade away. <laughs> well, maybe that's what it is. Maybe I just need to reverse my thinking. I know. But the, it's good advice if you, if you have insomnia. Terrible advice if Freddy Krueger's after you. Right, right. Yeah. So I always wondered, because of that, because of my uh, unrelenting insomnia, I always wondered, is there something going on in my dreams while I'm asleep that I'm trying to avoid somehow? Right. You know, and I never really, I mean, everybody's got nightmares once in a while, but I don't right. know, I never knew that this was inspired by true events, that there were a group of people in, in real life, not in the movies, that were trying to keep themselves awake at any cost. Uh, right. Well, before you get too far on that, bear in mind that as I researched the origins of this, um, it turned out that. Wes Craven probably made that part of the story up. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that, because uh, he told this story over and over. It was an, you know, an incredibly popular series of films. And he revisited this origin story in interview after interview. And there are a lot of these details that kept cropping up. Um, and when, so when I set out to, to find the story... You know, I thought it would be easy. Like I looked for um, coffee pots, and I think he mentioned um, maybe like Cambodians or, some, uh, or something of that nature. And so, you know, I was looking for these keywords and these things, and I never found this exact story in the, in the Los Angeles Times, even though um, all their records are digitized and they're really accessible. Um, it, it just didn't happen. Uh, instead, what I found was uh, – uh, the real story, which was that it was a nationwide uh, news event that was covered, you know, in newspapers across the country, um, not just in L.A. And it wasn't just this small um, string of deaths of mysterious deaths that only, you know, um, eagle-eyed Wes Craven saw. Everybody knew about it for about a year, and we've it's, and now it's just become this forgotten, uh, this forgotten history. Um, and it wasn't a case of people being chased by someone in their dreams. That wasn't really present in the news story at first. But it, people were dying in their sleep across the country uh, from about the late 70s um, and the early 80s. Uh, but it wasn't uh, – it wasn't like the, – the population wasn't randomized. <laughs> uh, it was um, – a group of of Asian immigrants, Asian refugees, actually called the Hmong, H M O N G. Uh, Got gotcha. you. Okay, we had yeah. where I grew up and went to school. There was a, a pretty sizable Hmong community, so I know I'm familiar. Yeah. Sure. Where was that? Uh, it was in Modesto, California. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, that's a huge population of Hmong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, they sure are. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that I can't remember the guy's name, but um, the the general that kind of became their spokesman uh, in the United States. Uh, I think he lived out in that area, mm-hmm. and so he kind of collected, you know, people collected around him. Um, but well, yeah, Modesto, I mean, California was big. I think Minneapolis, uh, but they're just spread across the country. Um, in in the late 1970s, there were about 35,000 of them in America, a very small population, and they were not centralized. Um, they're just, you know, there are pockets of them in these uh, urban areas across the country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there sure are. And um, since there was already a, a pretty sizable Asian community in Modesto, uh, we didn't think anything of it. You know, okay, more Asians. Great, wonderful. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of uh, – Modesto doesn't really have a centralized sort of Chinatown, but there are uh, these like Asian markets and Asian – like herb stores just scattered all throughout every once in a while you'll see one um so you know it was just a normal part of life for us but i had no idea that this came from their um from their culture from the group of immigrants that were here in the united states uh, of the mall yeah in the late 1970s and the early 80s um about over 100 american um residing mong died from this uh, mysterious sleep death. What? And yeah, and normally, you know, that a hundred people is not such a big deal. You know, a hundred deaths, nobody would notice. But that was a hundred out of about thirty-five thousand. So it was an epidemic. Yeah, I would say. I mean, that's a that's a, a large number of people considering the size of their population, and then very yeah. odd that it's contained within their population. Um, I've always been fascinated with this uh, phenomenon of people that die in their sleep. Yeah, we know right. that people have heart attacks in their sleep. Uh, you know, there's any number of things. Uh, people have strokes in their sleep, and then there are sleep deaths with no explanation at all. And this is always fascinated right. yeah. me. Mm-hmm. And initially, it seemed that it was contained to their population. I actually spoke to. Um, the, the morgue worker who was the first person to realize that there was a pattern uh, because he saw um, within the space of, I think, about a week, uh, uh, two Hmong men who had both died uh, in their sleep for mysterious reasons. And both of them are healthy. Otherwise, uh, up until the moment they died, they're healthy young men. And so he, uh, he was the one that really initialized the... Uh, the, the nationwide search for these deaths, and they found they were happening across the country. God, I mean, it's terrifying, right? I mean, that is the yeah. kind of thing that will keep you drinking espresso all night <laughs> long. You're like, I don't know, am I going to wake up? Yeah. Oh, yeah, my no, God. absolutely. And it was all like, um, it was unavoidable, though. I mean, there, you could stay awake, but you would be in, they're, they're, these are people dying amongst their families, in their homes. You know, um, they could, uh, you know, when it would just happen in a snap, uh, people would be like watching television. I think one of the, one of the first cases, there's a guy who stayed up who watched television mm-hmm. with, you know, one of his relatives and then he fell asleep and then he was dead, you know, and there's the, just gone and they couldn't, no one could explain it. 
Oh, good God. Yeah. Uh, did any of them uh, talk about having nightmares and that this is why they were trying to stay awake? I mean, it was really staying awake. That's a lose-lose. If you stay well, awake were, long were, enough, you're going to die there anyway. Really, there really weren't reports of them trying to stay awake. Okay. There really weren't – there wasn't this fear of it. And that, the, the, um, the, the term that came on through the investigation was um, – First, they called it, I think, Asian sleep death syndrome, and then they later called it sudden and unexplained nocturnal death syndrome. And it was sudden. It was unexplained. Uh, it wasn't like they were – they're not afraid of some kind of danger that was lurking in their dreams, as far as the investigators knew. Mm, okay. You know, initially, just that it was just you – know, they were dying, um, and it just seemed to be uh, – coming in this sudden and horrifying way. Wow. Well, did any of their families uh, get uh, interviewed in, in the process of the investigation? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, you know, all over. Um, you know, uh, uh, dozens of families were interviewed by them, and they said that they saw the deaths happen, and, you know, you would it would be like this horrible guttural sound that people would emit during dying, and they'd have some sort of it would look like some sort of paralysis that would be overtaking their body. Um, and, you know, they would, but they were unreachable. Like they were trapped inside their bodies. Like even though uh, like their, their wives, their loved ones would be next to them in bed or in the next room, there was no way to communicate or make contact with this person dying in front of them. Uh, it was just, you know, like, um, like almost like ghostly possession in some cases. Mm. Um, it does sound like what I've read about sleep paralysis, and it sounds truly horrifying. Yes, I, it, it. I mean, it's, it's fatal sleep paralysis. It's <laughs> and sleep paralysis is is pretty bad. You know, that's not pleasant. Uh, it's not fun. No, um, yeah, I actually ran across this documentary not very long ago called The Nightmare. Oh, it's wonderful. Everybody should watch that movie. Oh, yes, it sure is. And then after yeah. I saw that, I, I got on the air and I started uh, telling everybody and recommending it to people because this was the first time I'd seen a film that talks about shadow people. And yes. this was the first time I'd seen a film uh, just in, in a completely unbiased way, just have interviews with people who experience this don't taint their words don't twist their words just let them speak about what they're going through and it did it did exactly that and then i decided okay well for open lines let's talk about sleep paralysis and i was just blown away by excuse me how many people called in to say that they experienced this and the terrifying yeah. terrifying uh uh visions uh, things that they see while this is going on it was unbelievable yeah, yeah the the stat i saw was about eight percent of people uh will experience sleep paralysis sometime in their lifetime wow so it's incredibly common and um you know it's it's interesting because i've talked about sleep paralysis a lot um and a couple of interviewers have asked me if i've experienced it and i actually did for the first time about two weeks ago Oh, uh, that soon, huh? Yeah. Well, I, I, maybe it was, um, uh, you know, I was telling, I was inadvertently instructing my brain to experience it, so I'd have a more interesting answer to the question. But, um, 
but the you know the the thing about sleep paralysis the experience of it uh, is that you, know, you can't you can't move and you can hear things around you often like you can hear conversations happening in the next room you can uh, you're you're aware of your surroundings but you know you physically can't act on any of these things that you're experiencing um, and in my case uh, it. It was within my dream, and I dreamt that I was driving a car, and I couldn't move my body, and I was about to plow into like a crowd of people or something, and it was so it was so terrifying, and just you know, right there, like I, I immediately woke up, but I was so uh, glad to be awake. But in any event, um, with the, with the the reports of of the Hmong, like that's what people saw from the outside. And there were survivors that, uh, from these, the initial sleep deaths and they, they did report, you know, I'm glad you brought up, um, I forget the term you used. It was very nice. Uh, the shadow people. Yes. Yeah. You have to understand that. And I think that the nightmare movie is really good about explicating this point that the shadow people take on a lot of different forms. Yes, they do. Yeah, yes, and sure it's do. there's there there because it does affect eight percent of the population, the world's population. That they it goes from culture to culture, and you know this it's an inexplicable phenomenon, and it's probably unique to each individual. But you know when you talk about it, you start to get some commonalities, and um, it turned out that the Hmong had their own special version. Of the shadow people. Oh, really? Do they have a name for them? Do they call them something different? Yes, they called it uh, the Dab Sog. Ah, uh, D A B T S O G. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a researcher, uh, a woman named Shelley Adler, uh, who put out a book in 2011, I believe, and she interviewed all these Hmong about the sleep paralysis, and um, they would. She got some wonderful descriptions of the Dab Sog. My favorite one, the one that kind of has haunted me uh, since reading the book, was that it was like an American stuffed animal, only with horrible teeth and claws. So if you could imagine something like uh, Grover from Sesame Street coming at you in the dead of night. Sure. That, yeah, that's a wonderful thing to see in the middle of the night when uh, yeah. the day is yeah. done and you're trying to get comfortable and you're completely vulnerable. You're going to leave this world for seven or eight hours. And yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly the type of thing I'd like to see. Sure. Sure. Just oh, creeping out of the corner of your yeah. eye over there. Yeah. Why you wow. can't move. Exactly. And you're stuck in bed and you're hyper aware. Yes, of your exactly. surroundings. I've experienced yeah. sleep paralysis one time. This was several years ago, and I didn't know what it was. I really didn't know that it was a phenomenon. All I knew is that I woke up and couldn't move, absolutely paralyzed. And I did see—I didn't see a shadow person, but I saw some sort of black cloud uh, blob uh, above me. And yeah. it dove right into my chest, right, right into my heart. Oh, they they love your chest. That's how they kill you. Yes, exactly. That's a, with all these, I call them nightmare monsters. That's my term. Uh, with all the nightmare monsters, uh, not. All, I'm sorry. Let me back up. There's a commonality with a lot of them. Mm-hmm. A preponderance towards uh, perching on people's chests as they sleep, and they try to like snuff out your ability. 
to breathe. Like they try to snuff out your life force. Like it's a bellows, you know, in a fireplace and they'll just sit on your chest and just, and exert pressure and you die. Um, I think that the, the, the Japanese term for it is pokori, which means a death that comes in a snap. And the Filipino term is bangongat, uh, which means to rise and moan and sleep. And within the word moan, it is implied that you die. Um, but all these creatures, oh, there's a night hag. Can't forget about the night Oh, hag. yeah, we can't forget about her. Uh, yeah. You're right, though. They're, they are all sort of attracted to the chest area. And, and when that yeah. happened to me, it felt like this is it. I'm not going to survive this. Yeah. Well, that's because of the physicality of it, I think. Um, I think it's pretty supported by science. I mean, you can't it, – it's, it's strange. We don't know exactly why we dream. Like, we don't know exactly why we see what we see in our dreams. You would think that that would be something that we would know, but it's it's just we don't. We don't know why we experience these things. And the theory that I've um, accepted as, as truth is that, you know, our body is sending these sort of signals. You know, there's sort of like um, saying signals for a brain, like a test pattern, you know, uh, and our brain creates a story to make those signals make sense, mm. you know, to make these impulses and these uh, feelings, you know, this jumble of um, uh, stimuli, make them have some sort of sense. Well, we got to take a break right now, Adam. But uh, sure. when we come back, you know, let's see if we can possibly explain why if we can't explain why we have dreams, can we explain why we have nightmares? Adam Bolger is my guest tonight and we're discussing the true events that inspired a nightmare on Elm Street. We'll be right back. Okay, folks, we're having our packet loss problem between uh, Heather and ourselves. We're going to switch to another Internet provider. It takes about five minutes to break connections and bring them back up again. So there will be some dead air for a few minutes, and then uh, hopefully your connections will come back or retry in about five minutes. But we feel this is better than a replay, better than bad audio. Now let's have a few minutes during the break here to uh, switch us over there. Thank you for understanding. Well, this is what I get for opening the program with Nick Groff and Katrina Weidman. They brought their ghosts, didn't they? They brought the ghosts of the Black Monk House to disrupt my program. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So, Evil Keith to the rescue. I'm being told that all is well and all is flowing out to you crystal clear once again as we like to be so uh we do still have adam bulger with us tonight and right before all that happened and by the way my apologies for all of that you know we 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 have no control over what the other side is going to do to us here on this side isn't that what katrina nick and i were just talking about i believe it was so Adam Bolger is still with us, and before that break, uh, we were talking about the explanation for why humans have dreams at all, and uh, and I kind of asked him, well, when we come back from the break, can we talk about, is there any explanation for why we have nightmares? So let's see if we can get on to that. I'd like to welcome Adam Bolger back to the program. Adam, how you doing over there? I'm doing all right. How are you? Uh, well, much better now that we've got uh, the audio situation sorted out. 
Um, so uh, I am really interested in this. You know, we brought up the shadow people and that they uh, kind of go across cultures. And then right. you have your uh, sleep monsters that you kind of yep. refer to. But, you know, before we get more in depth into them, can we, is there any explanation? And you would probably know as you write about sleep and dreams and all this kind of stuff regularly. Uh, is there any explanation at all for why we have nightmares? Well, in a word, no. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, ladies and gentlemen. We, that's our sure. show. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's, and that's what makes them so terrifying, honestly. And that's what, you know, uh, we don't know why we dream what we dream. We don't know what kind of things make us have bad dreams. They could occur at any time. There's no way to prepare for them or to prevent them. Uh, you're going to have nightmares. That's a fact of life. The severity of them will vary, but you're going to have them. I can't say eat you know, an extra bowl of oatmeal and they're going to go away because that's not going to help. Darn. I don't want to lie to your listeners, Heather. I've been trying that too, that- and it has yet to work. <laughs> but I will say though that trauma seems to play a big part. Trauma and stress, at least with these stories, the stories of sleep paralysis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because you know, you you know, nobody wants to have sleep paralysis, right? No, no, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, and I have enemies. Right, and so, <laughs> <laughs> and so, if you could prevent them, you would. And you know, with everything else in our body, we. We know how to prevent things for the most part, or there are theories about them, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but you could, you know, drink some chamomile tea, light some scented candles, you know, go to sleep in, you know, with your favorite teddy bear and still, you know, fear, uh, still have a visit from the shadow creatures. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, yeah. There's no way to stop it. Yeah. Get out of my yeah. bedroom because I've done exactly that. Uh, exactly that and still have nightmares and still have uh, well like I said I've only had experienced true sleep paralysis one time and I don't know why it happened the one time Uh, it was a very stressful time in my life uh, at the time but you know what I can't remember a time in my life that isn't stressful so that doesn't stand (laughs) out so but um, but it is absolutely terrifying now you were talking about this unexplained what how did you term it? It's unexplained fatal sleep paralysis? Sudden and unexplained nocturnal death syndrome. There you that go. That was a term that the uh, the Centers for Disease Control came up with in uh, the early 80s during their investigation. And um, so, you, yeah, you can imagine sleep paralysis just as being terrifying on its own. Then you add this extra layer of fatality to it, and uh, it's the worst thing in the world. You know, just you could go to sleep and never wake up. And just like any other nightmare, there's no way to predict it or prevent it. So the fact that it had the CDC's attention at all is terrifying. Yeah, Uh, there was um, in December 1981, uh, it was the the lead story in uh, the CDC's uh, weekly report. Um, I think it was the the morbidity uh, report, just like, you know, reports of death leading deaths in America. Uh, they, devote, they devoted an entire um, uh, issue, I think is the right term for it, mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to sons, to sudden uh, and unexplained nocturnal death syndrome. And that gives you an idea of how much it was in 
much people uh, knew about it, how much it was in the public imagination. Um, and like I said, you know, it was in their media accounts about it across the country, uh, you know, their TV stories. And this was actually not the first time that it got popular attention, that uh, uh, fatal sleep paralysis uh, got popular attention. There's um, reports of it, I think, with Filipino sailors in the 1950s, and those were uh, widely reported enough to actually become the plot of a Perry Mason mystery that wow. was published in the 1950s. Yeah. Okay, you're really scaring me because this is all <laughs> the Asian population, and I'm half Chinese. <laughs> oh, yeah, the, the preponderance is Asian. Um, and there's probably a genetic component to it. Um, well, the good news is that... Uh, the, the fatal part, they know how it kills you. They know how the, the, the fatal sleep paralysis will kill you, and there's ways of preventing it. And in, I forget when, it might be the early 90s, but these two Italian brothers who are both um, cardiac researchers, they found the mechanism in the heart, I think it's like the lower ventricle or something of that nature, mm-hmm. that that would was killing people like, you know, this is like an electrical signal that went through the heart and they're able to find, to identify warning signs of people it might happen to, and then insert, you know, like a pacemaker to, or, you know, a a pacemaker like device um, to, you know, ward off the, the, the fatal signal. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure that there's somebody with a better understanding of (laughs) cardiac uh, uh, medicine that's, that would be angry at my mangling of all this explanation, but I hope that just roll with me. But, um, but it's called Brugada syndrome. So we know how it kills people, you know, like in the body, but what we don't know is what starts it. And, you know, it seems that there's a genetic preponderance to it, which is, what I wanted to address when you brought up, you know, the Asian thing, you know, because uh, it seems to affect mostly Asian people, but not exclusively. And with the Hmong, with this very small population that was closed off from the rest of society, they were, um, before they came to America, they were mostly like these, uh, they lived in, in the mountains of, of Laos and of China. And they're cut off um, from mainstream society in, in those home countries. Uh, and they were, you know, like, uh, they had an agrarian lifestyle. They're nomadic. You know, they didn't even, so they didn't really, they didn't have any kind of written language. In fact, they didn't, they were, they're considered pre-literate until oh. I think about the 1980s. Oh, um, okay. And they really didn't mix at all with the the populations at large. So as you can imagine, after centuries of that, that there's going to be, um, you know, the gene pool is kind of small. So, if, you know, if they are going to carry something like the genetic preponderance for fatal sleep paralysis. Mm, I see. Okay, yeah. well, that starts to make more sense. But the, really, that doesn't... Uh, calm my fears about this entire phenomenon uh not one bit uh it it <laughs> seems like that this is something that could happen uh to any of us uh because well, my apologies heather <laughs> that was really what i wanted to do i just wanted to tell you that you were safe and you could hold on to that teddy bear and you're going to get through the night no sleep paralysis no um no you're absolutely <laughs> not right. like i mean there is a genetic preponderance with the mong but it could happen to anybody 
Right. Just like sleep paralysis can happen to anybody. There's no explanation for it. Yeah. Uh, it comes when it's going to, and it goes away when it's going to. Uh, but going back to the documentary, The Nightmare, a oh, lot yeah, of yeah, them yeah. said, oh, well, when this or that happens, I know that it's going to happen tonight. And some of right. them didn't have those explanations at all. They would say, well, I, I don't know uh, when it's going to happen. It just does when it does. Yeah. And the fact the very fact that I opened up my phone lines to that and had call after call after call, Adam, of people yeah. experiencing this and describing their experiences. I mean, of all the weird things and the paranormal things that I, I have talked about, this just seemed uh, the most, one of the most terrifying. And I'll tell you why, because when we sleep, that is the most vulnerable time for all of us. Yeah. You are letting down all your guard and anybody can get you in your sleep. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a practicing witch and have been since I was about 12 years old. And so we know in witchcraft that, yes, you cast spells on people while they're asleep. One of the things that you're going to do is find out when a person sleeps. Because then when you're going to do a spell on them, it's going to have much more effectiveness because their guard is down. Right. So we know this. And that's what makes it so scary. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because get, you've got no uh, defense. The um, Well, there is the, the documentary. They did sort of point a line towards a defense um, with a couple of people they spoke with. Um, like, uh, I think the one woman... There's one woman who became like a um, uh, like a, a, a Christian. You know, she really reaffirmed her Christian beliefs because she called out to Jesus in the middle of the night, mm -hmm. you know, during her paralysis. And I think there's another woman who um, who I might be friends with Facebook now. That I think about it, um, I, that she she called on you know like a Wiccan uh, spirits and such. Mm -hmm. uh, so it seems like. Um, you know, if you can find something that, that you believe is benevolent and that you believe in, that maybe you can call upon that and that'll help you. Mm. Well, in the moment, as you know, because you experienced this just a couple of weeks ago, in the moment yeah. when it's happening to you, you can't think of anything. No. Oh, no, absolutely. It's like being in a car that's hydroplaning. You know, you know that there's a technique to get you straightened out. You're supposed to go against it or something like that, but... There's just so much uh, overwhelming uh, stimulation that you can't think straight. Mm -hmm. Which really makes me think that there had to be more going on with this Hmong community um, when when people started dying in their sleep. Uh, there's right. always in a story, there's, there's portions that are unsaid. There's portions that even <laughs> the best investigators and reporters just don't get to. And especially when it comes to a closed off community like this, sure, there's going to be well, talk with among them that we don't find out about. Right. And probably the, the, well, the thing I mentioned before was the, um, uh, Shelley Adler's, uh, interviews about, you know, their, their, their dream folklore. Um, and, and I'll, I'm going to revisit that in a second, but first just to kind of quickly, get, you know, give you an idea of, of their history at that time, you know, they had fled the, the one, m most of the Hmong that were in America had fled uh, Laos uh, after taking part in a CIA backed secret uh, civil war mm -hmm. against uh, the communists in Laos. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
the Hmong, even though they were closed off from society, they they uh, sided with the uh, the uh, the royalty, you know, and uh, the traditional government there, and they lost badly, and the communists uh, didn't take that very well. Uh, there are concentration camps, there are mass slaughter. It was brutal. So that's what they're fleeing. Uh, they're fleeing this horror. You know, one of the uh, some of the some of the worst you know warfare scenes of the 20th century. They're fleeing that, um, and they came to America, and uh, because they had you know they had this CIA connection, uh, so we were kind of we tried to be nice to them, but you know we're you know not that great at it. And also, they're an agrarian nomadic society, and we put them in places like Minneapolis or. Um, you know, I forget where else, but cities. And these are not people who were ready to, you know, work in gas stations or factories or anything like that. They're ready to burn down a field uh, to, you know, to uh, to cultivate opium. Uh, and there wasn't any, you know, need for that in America at the time, obviously, you know. Um, so there's this profound sense of disconnection and helplessness that was pervading uh, the community in America, and also they're scattered. They didn't have the the centralized tribal thing that they had had traditionally, you know, for centuries. Mm. So they there was always this lingering. Um, there's always this lurking dab song. There's always this lurking sleep paralysis worry, but usually there is some kind of remedy for it that was available within the community. Mm-hmm. You know, you could talk sure. to an elder, you could talk to a priest, and you could tell them what's going on. And there were certain, you know, folklorish things that you could do to ward them off. And, you know, that worked. It was sort of like in the documentary. There's some some kind of benevolent thing that you could trust that would work, that mm-hmm. would be effective in getting you through the night. Mm-hmm. Well, but not be- for a hundred of them didn't get them through the night at all. Right. But that's because they didn't have access to those people anymore. Like that person might be in Modesto, and you're living in uh, uh, Minneapolis with you know, and you don't know how to contact them. Mm-hmm. You know, in this modern landscape that's kind of foreign and confusing for you. And they were just coming from uh, some pretty severe trauma. If you consider right. the environment that they left, and then they're here, this environment is also traumatic. So then it's no wonder uh, that they would have had trouble sleeping, of course. But dying in one's sleep, that's going a step further, uh, farther rather than I think any of us would have thought possible. Yeah. And then the uh, the even odder thing was how it all ended, oh. which was that it ended for no reason. It just stopped. Nobody cured it. Nobody uh, solved it. They didn't unlock some secret box. Um, just you know, the deaths stopped occurring with the Hmong population. Wow. Well, I mean, do we really know uh, that it stopped? Because people die in their sleep all the time. And there are medical explanations for some of them, but not all. Sometimes we don't know why a person falls to sleep and they just don't wake up. Well, the urgent uh, emergency that was occurring with the Hmong population stopped. Fatal sleep paralysis did not stop. Wow. Um, but people were, but invest, medical investigators are more attuned 
to find examples of it. They knew, you know, what it might look like after, you know, the CDC investigation and, mm-hmm. you know, collecting all that data that occurred, you know, in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and it happened with people who were displaced and who were placed in, uh, who were living amongst uh, stressful situations. Like there were parallels there. Um, I don't remember the exact details, but I think that there were um, some kind of migrant workers, again, Asian, living, you know, away from their homeland in pretty brutal uh, work conditions. I think it was like construction and they had been working like 16 or 17 hour days for weeks on end. And um, there's, I think two of them died of uh, fatal sleep paralysis in the same night. Oh, yeah, and which is statistically crazy, but so it does seem like um, extreme stress and uh, disconnection from your immediate environment. What about an interest in the paranormal? Is that factor in anywhere? <laughs> um, no, you know that seems more helpful. Honestly, um, it, like it isn't. That doesn't seem to be a danger from what I've seen. It seems to be. Something that could help you, like uh, believing in some kind of uh, force that you can call on mm-hmm. when a shadow creature is there, you know. But the, I mean, the problem with with sleep paralysis is that um, you can't do anything while the shadow creature is in your room. You can't talk. You can't move. Uh, you can just, you know, be preyed upon. You That's can't, all you can do. You can't even scream, even if you tried. I remember actually opening my mouth and trying to scream and just nothing will come out yeah you just can't it's almost like a it's almost like getting the wind knocked out of you but you you no one's punched (laughs) you in the chest it's just your breath is gone Uh, yeah and so you know this is something that uh has been talked about throughout history for for hundreds and hundreds of years i mean going all the way back to the night hag and it, it really in in our day and age you would think we'd be able to figure this out yet there are still some things that medical science just cannot help us with yeah and that we one just- of my favorite folklore stories uh, um is that in some slavic countries and in some parts of russia that uh uh mothers would leave like uh you know very sharp knives around uh the beds and cribs of their children in case that some shadow creature would come in the night Oh, that's safe for the poor toddler. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, that's one way to do it. Uh, it does right. show that there was a legitimate fear, at least. Uh, well, we got to take another break here, Adam. Adam Bolger is my guest tonight. We're talking about the true events that inspired A Nightmare on Elm Street. And we're going to get deeper and deeper into this as the night progresses. The audio is fixed. And so I'm Heather Wade, and we'll be right back. When we open up the phone lines later on tonight, oh, in about an hour or so, I am going to want to hear about your nightmares. Have you ever had a nightmare that took you to the brink of what you thought might be death? Well, we want to hear from you tonight. Also, those of you that have experienced sleep paralysis, I'd like to hear from you also. And if you wanted to ask someone about sleep, anything that there is to know about sleep, well, my guest tonight, Adam Bolger, might be a good person to ask. And everything that we've talked about so far tonight really does make one expression come to mind, and that is, if I die before I wake. This conversation certainly does give that expression uh, much more weight 
in my mind than it had before. Uh, welcome back, Adam. Well, thank you, Heather. Uh, oh, well, sure. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating subject tonight. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm really curious about Wes Craven. Did he yeah. ever openly come out and say that this is uh, what inspired A Nightmare on Elm Street? Or did he act like he just came up with this all on his own? Well, I mean, in the interviews that he had throughout his life about it, um, he, you know, he alluded to this very specific story, like I, like I said before, um, and so that's why when I started researching it, I was so surprised I couldn't find any evidence of it. Um, and the story I did find evidence of, um, it seemed to run parallel to the story that he told. Uh, and my timing was pretty terrible on it because as it turned out, um, when I was researching the story, he was dying of cancer. Oh. So, yeah. So uh, I contacted him. I contacted him through his um, – uh, representatives and they were very polite, but you know, they said that he didn't want to, he, you know, he was, he was very, very happy with the interest, but he couldn't participate at the time. And he died maybe like, uh, two months, two months after that. Oh. Um, so he did not corroborate this. Uh, and this is something I made very, very clear in, in my story. Um, uh, that you know, I I wasn't able to get him to say yes or no on this, but it seems like this uh, it had to be this. This was something, even though we don't talk about it now, and it's drifted out of our um, you know, it's drifted out of our collective unconscious or just drifted out of our memory. But this was uh, a national news story that uh, gripped people. There and it wasn't just you know these little sto- these little stories that he talked about like everybody would have known about it, but it was just uh, Wes Craven's unique insight and genius uh, into the story that into what made the story frightening that created Freddy Krueger, and um, this is this is. I'm going to go out on a limb, Heather. Do you mind? Not at all. Not on this program. No. Feel free. (laughs) (laughs) So just how we talked about how shadow creatures, they permeate different cultures and they take different forms and they, uh, but they all have sort of some commonalities. All right. So I think that Freddy Krueger is one. And I think that Freddy Krueger to a degree willed himself into being. I think that somehow he that he was a shadow creature that ingrained himself into the imagination of Wes Craven, who at the time was not he's not a successful filmmaker. He was a down on his luck uh, recovering cocaine addict who had made two low budget movies that made some money and had made about five okay budget movies that had lost a lot of money. He was a guy desperately in need of a hit. Um, and, you know, he was rattled and broke. <laughs> mm, yeah, right. And kind yeah. of hoping that the next thing he stumbles on is going to be that one big hit that he needed. Exactly. Yeah. And so then the, the, the LA Times is delivered to his doorstep and he came out in a bathrobe. And according to his own accounts at the time, he would mostly just wear a bathroom and a, a pith helmet. Mm, um, sounds healthy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it reminded me of my good friend Hunter Thompson, actually. But um, 
Oh, if we have time, I definitely want to ask you some questions <laughs> about that. You don't know how hard it is to hold back. My God. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Uh, but um... but, uh, but it, it is fascinating because, you know, here here's a guy that just didn't have anything going for him at all. And he probably saw this article, right, in the L.A. Times yeah. and just got to thinking. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of horror movies at the time uh, were inspired by real life you know things like I, I i don't remember them specifically but i think like ed gain um he you know so, somehow that led to the texas chainsaw massacre and maybe even to psycho but there you know there were real life inspirations but this is different this was a real life um mystery you know and it wasn't just a, a crazed person this was a crazed um traumatic uh, event um, you know this crazed amorphous traumatic event um i would say it's almost a paranormal thread within everyone's unconscious because we all have nightmares and again when you sleep you're very vulnerable so yeah. that makes it naturally very kind of terrifying and the nighttime i mean come on the night there's something right. odd when the sun goes down there's something very strange about the nighttime especially right now this time of night that you and i are talking there's a weird right. quality about it and so to be vulnerable in a very strange period during our 24 hours uh it, it just it's the perfect storm to to kind of birth a creature, a character like Freddy Krueger. Absolutely. I got to tell you, when I was a kid and I saw him on the screen for the first time, I did feel like this was something I had seen before, even though I knew I had never seen him before. Right, right. Well, Wes Craven, um, he was very smart. He's a very smart man, but he was also very much in touch with uh, guttural instincts about uh, – what scare people and what will affect otherwise affect people watching some kind of entertainment. Um, he was a psychology student and he got a master's degree from John Hopkins university. So he knew about Freud, he knew about Jung. Um, and, but he also loved, uh, you know, like, uh, night of the living dead. Uh, he loved like, you know, the, the great horror movies of the time, but he had a, a an insight to them that maybe other people didn't. But um, also, it's. <laughs> I think I think this is fascinating. It, against the backdrop of his academic background, he broke into film by working on por uh, pornography. Like <laughs> he, he was probably on the. He might have been on the crew of Deep Throat, but nobody's really sure. But uh, <laughs> well, but yeah, porn so can like be scary too. Of you know things so like you know he was all about you know viscerality of horror, but also you know in a very like gut way like you know what'll make you jump and be frightened but also this very heady understanding of it mm -hmm. and so that all combines with with freddy um like even down to, to details that seem arbitrary like the colors of uh freddy's sweater like that you know kind of like real ugly green and green and brown or green and like reddish brown color. Do you I'm remember pretty it? sure it was green and red. Yeah. yeah. And you know, yeah. what always terrified me about Freddie's sweater is that those are Christmas colors. And so <laughs> it seemed like he was, you know, uh, the embodiment of everything. That's the opposite of Christmas. You know, we're right. not going to make it. It's not going to be a happy, joyous time. Oh no, I'm going to slice you into bits. <laughs> well, the re it, the, the actual inspiration from it was from, um, 
um, a psychology magazine. I think it might have even been Psychology Today where they talked about the effect of colors on the human eye and that that color combination was supposed to be the most disturbing one. Well, they're right. They're absolutely <laughs> right because it is terrifying. And it was also kind of like it, it put off the idea that Freddy doesn't care about himself. And if he doesn't right. care about himself, then why is he ever going to care about you? Yeah, absolutely. There's in the, the first movie, uh, one of his, I think one of the first time he attacks somebody, one, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't put his, his horror outwards. He directs it inwards at first and, uh, he cuts himself and I think he like cuts off his fingers or he cuts off like his arm and then just like laughs mm-hmm. and he shows that he's this willingness to inflict pain on himself. And it is this, um, very powerful, like, uh, self-loathing or this very powerful, um, abnegation uh, of self well but at the same time he's taking joy in it uh, oh yeah he would hurt himself and brutally gleeful sadist right he'd hurt himself i remember one scene i don't remember which nightmare on elm street it was but there's one scene where he takes that glove with the knives on it and he draws it across his chest and he's cutting himself and he's just laughing looking right into the camera and you're thinking i the i I'm not going to stand a chance. I don't yeah. stand a oh, chance yeah. at all. And Johnny Depp did not. No, no, he did not. <laughs> if if I remember right, I, I had a waterbed at the time. <laughs> and that, oh my God. I mean, on my deathbed, I'm going to remember just how scary that was. Uh, because he was the one that died. Uh, he got sucked into the waterbed and then yeah. spurted back out and onto the ceiling. It was just horrible. Horrifying, you know, a yeah, child yeah. of my age should not have seen that. <laughs> yeah, and it's thinking of that scene. It's so vivid for me. I haven't seen that movie in like a year, um, and I just crystal clear. I remember every beat of that scene. It's amazing. the The entire the movie as a whole, it's not perfect. It's not a perfect movie, but um, but let's say it's like that. That movie is ninety minutes long. There are forty perfect minutes in that movie. Mm, yes. Well, yes. And that it's a little bit imperfect, I, I think, kind of makes it a little more attractive oh, yeah. to me. I mean, but that's just my own twisted taste. But right. I didn't well, there's mind like, the my, my favorite scene in that my, – my favorite point of direction in that movie is something that I don't think most people would even notice. But there's a scene where um, Heather Langenkamp is dreaming uh, at, at her school. And the, the way they signify that it's in a dream is she's like she's walking through the school hallway, and it's filled with leaves from outside. And it's possible, but you know the, the leaves exist. That's not a surreal thing in and of itself. But it's having a pile of leaves in the middle of a high school hall. It's just this very subtle and very off kilter, um, uh, you know, surreality. Uh, and it shows like the plasticity of dreams and how things are not what they seem, you know, like things can bend and and break in a second. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you get that sense 
throughout the whole movie, throughout all of those movies, especially the first one, and you're definitely on to you know the game when you get into yeah. two and three and four. Uh, but there's always <laughs> this lingering sense that at just any moment it's gonna break off and go completely out of control. You just don't know when. Yeah, yeah. But in, in the first one, especially, which you know, Wes Craven only directed two of them. I think I forget how many there are. I think including like Freddy versus Jason. There's like maybe. I think there's Not- about 29 of them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was like nine, and then they made the remake too, which I never saw, um, which I should, uh, considering that I'm going on the radio and talking about them like an expert. But um, Wes Craven was only uh, directly involved with the first one and um, the last the, the last original one. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, oh yes, I did see that one. Where, it's pretty good. That yeah, one's really good. It that is one's really interesting because it is. It, it gets back to my supposition that uh, Freddy Krueger is a shadow creature that launched himself into the collective unconscious mm-hmm. because that's what the movie is about. It's about. It's a meta movie about Freddy Krueger being a real terror that. Wes Craven accidentally brought upon the world and is now preying upon uh, the people who made the original film. Right, exactly. That's what I loved about it. I love that Heather Langenkamp is reading the script and then she yeah. gets to a point in where in reading the script where now there's no words on the page, but everything that's happening around her as it happens starts to appear on the page. Yeah. Oh, and the thing, the thing about Freddy is that he's a shadow creature perfectly calibrated for uh, post-industrial America. Like most of those shadow creatures from folklore, they're uh, wood spirits or um, you know, something with a, directly from nature. Like um, the Badabat, uh, which is a, um, either Thai or Filipino uh, nightmare creature. Um, it originally lived in trees, and they come into your house because you use the trees to build your house, and it makes them angry. And they just wait until you sleep, and then they kill you through sleep paralysis. But with Freddy, you know, Freddy is—he's not wood. He's not nature. What is he? He's trash. Pretty much. He's, I mean, it yeah. looks like he got his clothes and his hat out of the trash. I, I think he. But even got his the... skin—it's like. Um, sausage casing or something you know it's like a burnt 7-eleven hot dog mm-hmm. you know it's like uh you know like oil puddles like that that you'd find in a parking lot you know it's um it's an ugly version of modern america it's an ugly reflection of modern america that that is uh that contrasts with the really um, pastel-colored, bright suburbs that the first movie takes place in. Especially during that time, the 80s. I mean, yeah. it was pastel everything everywhere all the time. Yeah. And it took a while in the 90s for that to kind of, you know, drift off. Uh, and I was glad that it did. But yeah. you're right. The stark contrast of him yeah. against the uh, the pretty outward-facing uh, image that we like to project of our, our clean, wonderful, and perfect lives. Well, he's the... Yeah antithesis of all of that and Absolutely. with his glove with the knives on it, it and yeah when and you that's see also, that uh, being made that's also a key characteristic of shadow creatures is some kind of sharp object mm-hmm. you know it ties right back in 
Right. Well, and, and it, it's also, I believe, you know, when you see that being made, I don't think you actually see the glove being made until the second film, uh, but it, it appears to be just kind of found items like he found a bunch of steak knives and he found a glove and he you know it it just all stuff gathered from the trash and then he makes the trash into this horrific weapon uh that captured all of us you know really did yeah he's uh he's a real great recycler he's real great (laughs) yeah find a second use for these things yeah it's like all right so you don't need these garden shears all right gonna murder your children with them I'll find a use for them. Don't worry yeah. about this. Uh, so, uh, I mean, is there, uh, I'm sure after studying this, have you found any stark differences between the true events that inspired uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street and the movie A Nightmare on Elm Street? Well, the most obvious one is ethnicity. Um, again, you know, Wes Craven was a smart guy. I think that he knew that there wouldn't be too much commercial potential in 1982 uh, or I think it was 1982 when the first movie was in production for a movie about um, Hmong immigrants, you know. So he made them all uh, apple-cheeked uh, white Americans from the suburbs, you know. The And it made it that much more scary uh, because it was that much more relatable for American audiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because this could happen to any of us. That's the way it was presented. There's an Elm Street in every town. Mm, right exactly right yeah which is actually kind of a literal statement of fact there are a lot of elm street there are and every time (laughs) i pass one you know i I always have a little moment of pause in my soul going yeah i'm never gonna live on an elm street ever (laughs) not ever um yeah when i was researching it i was trying to uh, figure out whether elm uh elm trees were uh, were grown in Asia or not. I don't know that much about trees, but it seems like they are. So there's a universality to it. Mm, okay. Yeah. Were but that there... was the biggest thing, that it was about you know teenagers and it was about um, revenge, that the movie was, was driven through by revenge, which is another thing that makes it so interesting is that we're actually kind of uh, sympathetic towards Freddy. Like, he got a raw deal. You know, he, yeah, he was a child killer, but he's also a victim of vigilante justice. And there, you know, this is, you know, to a degree, him killing these teenagers were chickens coming home to roost because their, their parents, you know, killed Freddie. Right. Well, yes, right. Of course, in the story, but it's not like he yeah. didn't deserve it. Uh, yeah, he didn't deserve it, but, you know, um, he probably could have stood a fair trial. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm with the I'm with the parents on this one. Uh, you know, well, then, I, I didn't blame I hope them. You're ready to reap what you sow. <laughs> well, I'm not going to go around terrorizing children. That's for sure. But I I thought. Um, I mean, maybe this is just my childlike mind again. But I thought, yeah. yeah. So they they burned him down. Well, you know, when the mother finally comes back and says, "Okay, I know who Freddy Krueger is, and I'm going to tell you all about him." Yeah. And when she's telling the story, I was rooting for her. I was like, "Yeah, but you didn't burn him down all the way." <laughs> well, he somehow, uh, you know, I don't. Uh, it's not clear in the first movie. The, mo- the first movie is pretty economical. They they don't really get into any detail about how Freddy acquired his supernatural abilities or whatever, but. If they, if he had been put on trial, he never could have gotten into people's dreams. 
he would just probably still be in jail, rotting away, looking like Robert Englund, you know, <laughs> being preyed upon by other prisoners. You know, what do they, what do they call him? Uh, what, what, you know, short eyes. Yeah. <laughs> well, would've, it would have been a lot worse for him, man. A lot uh, okay. worse. Okay. You, you've got a point there then. Yeah. I guess the whole outcome would have been better if he were just being caught and sent yeah. to prison. We wouldn't have had this entire phenomenon. But. It's it, that's exactly what it was and what it still is. It's a it turned into a phenomenon yeah. and it brought nightmares our nightmares uh, to the fore where it's usually something we don't talk about. It stays in the background. You might mention it to somebody, you know, in passing. Well, I had a nightmare last night. I was still feeling kind of weird. But this brought it right yeah. to the table, uh, right to the center of our conversation uh, and everybody just glommed onto it. And, and it makes me think that maybe disturbing nightmares uh, is something that's far more prevalent among us than we think, or we're prepared to acknowledge. Well, I think it's something that we don't want to talk about. And I think that I, I know I often forget exactly what I dream about when I wake up. Very often, I'll just wake up and be glad it's over and just get on with whatever I'm doing, which is either, you know, waking up for the day or trying to get back to sleep. And so it's not really that present in our mind, unless it's very traumatic, unless it's uh, something that occurs over and over, unless it's something, you know, like sleep paralysis or, um, you know, extreme anxiety dreams or something that's induced by stress. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, most nightmares are, uh, they stick with you and, and they are very traumatic and they are very frightening. And, you know, I don't know about everybody else, but when I have a nightmare, it's never just one dream. It kind of stays with me for three or four nights and it sort of is a, it's like a film that's going to play itself out only when I fall asleep. So I'll have the initial nightmare and then the next night, the next chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter. And I'm kind of going, really, do I have to do this again? I want this to be (laughs) over with right now, please. Uh, And that it just won't. It has a life of its own and it's over when it decides that the story is over with. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that that makes it even more terrifying. Uh, wow, look at this. The night is getting away from us here, Adam. we got to take another break. Uh, but when we come back, I, I want to talk to you about, you know, if you think in our pop culture that if the image of Freddy Krueger is important at all, if we should put any importance on this figure that captured everybody's imaginations. Well, we'll talk about that when we come back with my guest, Adam Bulger. We're discussing the true events that inspired A Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm Heather Wade, and we'll be right back. When we say the man tonight, we mean Freddy Krueger. Have you ever had... Night after night after night of nightmares. I know, I know you've had sleep paralysis. I know you have, because I've heard all about it. And tonight, when we open up the phone lines here in a little bit, I sure would like to hear about it again. I've got Adam Bolger as my guest tonight, and he writes extensively about sleep and dreams and wakefulness and including nightmares. 
and sleep paralysis and all the things that happen to us when we go to sleep at night. So if you wanted to ask someone, Adam would be the person to ask. And I have, I have a few more questions about him. What we're talking about tonight are the true events that inspired A Nightmare on Elm Street, the true events that inspired Wes Craven himself to write this story. And boy, did that movie ever capture the imagination across America, didn't it? I know. I know. When I say Freddy Krueger, that image just pops up in your mind, right? Uh, Just without you even trying. That's how deeply ingrained he is into our culture. And I find it, in a sense, paranormal that he did capture our imagination so completely and embedded himself in all of our nightmares the way that he did. I'd like to welcome Adam Bolger back to the program. Uh, Welcome back, Adam. Uh, Really interesting discussion tonight. I mean, this is a little bit outside my wheelhouse, but I (laughs) I still find it uh, very relevant, especially right now. You know, we're right before Halloween here. And sleep has always fascinated me because we're still not quite sure why we need to sleep. But if you don't get enough, you will die. That's true. And yeah. the fact that there was this entire uh, epidemic within the Hmong community where people were dying in their sleep, that kind of makes it, well, you just can't win. Either you're not going to get to sleep and you're going to die from lack of it, or you're going to go ahead and, and slip into sleep, which throughout time and throughout the legends it's often referred to as the the brother of death itself uh, yeah. you could end up dying in your sleep so you can't win either way you can try to control it but you can't and there's a few things that actually i failed to ask you i do want to get to sure. uh, why freddy Kruger, if Kruger is important in our in our culture uh, but a few things i didn't ask about the mong and the true events were uh, how in the world, in the first place, did the medical examiners make a connection between all the deaths? Uh, did that take some time, or how did that come about? Uh, well, it was there, there was a, a coroner that made the connection initially, uh, and he made it because he saw uh, two Hmong sleep deaths um, in the space of a couple of weeks, or, or even less. Um, he just recognized that the, the same, um, I guess symptoms isn't the right word, uh, you know, the same mortality causes. Um, and he just thought it was strikingly odd that he would see two members of such a small population die for the same, uh, you know, mysterious reasons. Mm-hmm. So on a hunch, um, he called up coroners in other cities and they started reporting that, yes, this was happening uh, in a lot of places where there were Hmong populations. And no other signs of disease. No, they're otherwise very healthy, uh, very healthy, mainly men. Um, and the, the first one that really got a lot of attention uh, w- w- in the medical community, he was a guy who was like in his 20s. He was, an, you know, athletic and he was actually uh, very well adjusted to America, like the, the stress that we were talking about before of displacement, Mm -hmm. um, didn't affect him. Uh, 
episode was especially mysterious. Like everybody thought that he was um, a uh, you know, very successful example of the Hmong assimilating into America up until the point where he died. Mysteriously, without explanation, in his sleep. sudden and unexplained, yeah. Jeez, <sighs> my God. I mean, it really makes me wonder why I haven't explored this in the past, why I haven't explored it up until now. Uh, but I guess I just didn't know that this, uh, can you call it a syndrome? Uh, the idea, yeah, or, well, they did. Or disorder? Yeah. Uh, the, you know, I didn't know that this existed. Um, so yeah. I guess that's why. So I appreciate you uh, coming on tonight to have this in-depth conversation about it, because I think sure. more people should know that this does happen uh, occasionally in passing once in a while i'll mention on the program you know some people don't have an explanation for why they die in their sleep well i guess i wasn't wrong <laughs> about that oh my god yeah well sleep paralysis like i said before is very common you know it's about i think it's about eight percent of the population of the world mm-hmm. will experience sleep paralysis at some point but fatal sleep paralysis it's a much smaller group that is uh, affected by it and they do have ways of um, they do have ways of seeing whether or not you're a risk and ways of preventing it. And from what I understand right now, um, they're looking into the genetics of it and they're trying to figure out who is susceptible from their genetics. So they're they have it. It's it's very scary, but um, you know it's. We have our best men on it, and they're doing a good job. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I got to say, I am very proud of both sides of where my genetics come from. But yeah. I think I have never been so happy to to just be half Chinese. Uh, I, don't, I don't say that in a mean way. <laughs> I'm just saying maybe no, there's yeah. maybe I only have a half a chance of dying in my sleep. <laughs> right. That's right, what right, I mean. Right. That's what I mean by that. So please, please, everybody, don't get me wrong there. Um, but uh, th- there's an interesting question on, on my notes here that I have also failed to ask you. Uh, and that is something I've never heard of. What What is the nocebo effect? Aha. Yeah, that's part of um, what Shelley Adler wrote about. Um so you know what a placebo is? Yes. Yeah. So imagine the opposite of that. that instead of having something that you would ingest or take and that has a, 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 a benefit, a, a beneficial effect on you, mm-hmm. and it cures you despite not really having any medicinal value. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine there's something that you take or you experience, and because you believe that it's doing you harm, it actually does you harm. Oh, yeah. So that's where uh, the folklore comes in, and that's how it acts really strongly, because what Adler found in her interviews with the Hmong was that there's a very profound uh, nocebo effect, this belief that their culture had been spread too thinly and that they were out of touch with their traditional remedies for these, uh, you know, for these uh you know, kind of supernatural threats, uh, existential threats in this case. Sure. Um, uh, probably in their homeland, they would go to the wise man or the wise woman that handled these situations. And being in America, in a big city, they don't have access to whoever the wise person was of their village, right? Exactly. So that creates a state of panic. And you will believe that it could be fatal. And also, there, there's, a, there's another element to it that you feel like you... Uh, 
deserve this sort of fate. You believe that you deserve this punishment because you have removed yourself from these traditions. You know, that you've taken yourself away from that wise man or wise woman. That you're now um, you're doing these kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, heretical things with your life. You know, you're, you're divorced from uh, your traditional value system. You know, it does, it does remind me of, uh, of the Japanese uh, and How their so? culture. Well, because they, well, I'm, I don't think I'm going to tell anybody anything they've never heard before, but I mean, they do, they do have a culture of shame and honor. Yeah. And it's very, very strong, and it's very deeply seated, and it goes back for hundreds and thousands of years. Um, so if they dishonor their family or their company or whoever it is that they represent, they will often uh, turn inward and almost uh, say that, well, the only way to gain my honor, once again, is through death. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's just why that kind of reminds me of that. And, uh, you know, I mean, us Asians, we like to say, oh, no, we're all very, very different. But we've, <laughs> we've got similarities all throughout. Um, and, and so that that does remind me of the Japanese culture in that way, that um, if, if, they, if the Hmong were uh, so devastated by being separated from their homeland and from yeah. where they originally came from, they might, you know, I don't know, uh, they might be in such pain that they would think, well, you know, I, I deserve death for not being a part of my culture. Maybe maybe they feel like they just belonged on their own land and they couldn't live there. And being here was such a, so different from where they came from Yeah, that, God, I can't deal with this. Maybe maybe death is better. I mean, I'm not saying that that's right or that that's a logical line or a healthy line of thinking, but maybe... Oh, of course not. Yeah. You know, maybe that's... Uh, no, you're, you're right. Um, I mean, that's a very good way of sort of explaining what was going on because they came over and they were... They, they came over to America and they were initially dependent on social services entirely, you know, for their livelihood. And this idea that they weren't... That they shouldn't be here was reinforced... Uh, in subtle ways, um, you know, just they couldn't join the workforce. Um, they couldn't understand the language. They couldn't take part in the culture in, in significant ways. And they, um, you know, they, they didn't have the, the, the resources uh, that were, you know, all around them in different cities. Gosh, that is tragic. I mean, just absolutely tragic to hear about that and and then try and fold that into the explanations for these sudden sleep deaths um yeah it it's almost makes it more mysterious at that point that a, that a person's own psychology can go so deep in the downward spiral that it would even cause a person's death yeah i mean it's it, it, that, that's a component of it. I, I think genetics does play a large factor in it because um, the thing I wasn't able to explain very well before, just because I my science my I don't have a great scientific background, but um, there's an irregularity to the heart that 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 seems to exist in the cases of fatal sleep paralysis. Oh, and I heard you say that, and yeah. I actually have. Uh I have a mild 
mild heart condition. So actually, my <laughs> oh, heart skipped a beat when I heard you say that. I went, oh, no. Oh, God, no. This is okay. This is getting very personal tonight. <laughs> Sorry, Heather. <laughs> well, I like to be scared. Better be careful yeah. what I ask for. Well, uh, this, is, this is a different kind of scared. This isn't a roller coaster. This is, uh, you know, this is mortality. It is. It is. Yeah. And and to me, you know, there, there's a lot of scary paranormal things out there. But when it comes to our own mortality, I can't think of anything more frightening than that. Uh, because, I mean, let's face it, every day we live, every day, every night that we sleep is really bringing us closer to our own deaths. I guess so. You know, I'm more of an optimist than that. I mean, yeah, there's a there's the uh, uh, inexorable march of time, sure, but you know, <laughs> it's good stuff. Oh well, it is. It's good stuff to think about and talk about in the middle of the night. Um, <laughs> so okay, so that brings me uh, back to Freddy Krueger. Why do you think uh, his his character, his image, um, is important, or do you think he's important? Oh, I think he's incredibly important. I think he's an un underheralded cultural icon uh, on the level of. John Wayne, Elvis Presley, and Michael Jackson. Uh, you know, he has this uh, icon, I- iconic look to him. You know, he's um, an easily, you know, recognizable silhouette uh, in a way that almost uh, no other movie characters are. Um, and, you know, he's a Halloween costume. And he's an attitude. You know, uh, there's... He's... You you said this before. When you say his name, you think of him instantly, and it's it's a detailed remembrance. It's a detailed portraiture of oh, Freddy Krueger. Yes, you know you, you're going to remember his claw. You're going to remember his hat. You're going to remember his sweater. You're going to remember his skin. You're going to remember his sneers. You're going to remember the you know that awful pepperoni stuff on his face. You know. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, and and why is that important to us that we do remember him so easily? I mean, that's why I used a silhouette of him uh, on on the <laughs> website tonight because I knew that's all you all the information you really need. Uh, you're gonna get the idea if you just see yeah. that. So uh, because he's so deeply ingrained in our consciousness, or, or are there other reasons why you consider him to be important? Oh well. Because he's the the American shadow creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's incredibly important. We don't have a shared collective folklore. What we have is pop culture, right? And and somehow you know through pop culture, this this you know we just this shadow creature, this nightmare monster emerged, and you know. The reason why Freddy Krueger is so scary and so memorable to us as a monster is because of all of the movie monsters, he's the only one that could really kill us. He could appear in a dream. He could appear in a moment of sleep paralysis. He could be that shadow creature. And he could be there during that moment of fatal sleep paralysis. He really could die by Freddy's hand. Oh, yeah, you've gone and done it now. (laughs) 
Ah, I I think my heart just stopped for a second there. No, because you're right. Uh, That is the difference. I've always tried to... I never could quite put my finger on what separates him. But you're right. Uh, Jason is just... He's just a character. Michael Myers is just an invented character. Uh, But Freddy comes from our nightmares and 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 this is a real medical syndrome that killed a number of people a large number of people and so that makes it that brings it into well as close to our reality as any movie uh villain has ever been yeah absolutely and you might not have had your finger on the importance of freddie but he had his finger on you well, that's for sure. I mean, I have to confess, I have had nightmares about him. Um, oh, of course. Everybody has. He shows up there, man. That's where he lives. Mm-hmm. He's Freddy Krueger. Right. He's in your nightmares. Yeah, right. I remember, oh gosh, I, I was a teenager. I was in high school. And um, of course, you know, girls, we always have our, our mirror and that's where we get ready for the day, right? And I remember in my nightmare, I was doing my hair, getting ready for school that morning. And... um then I look behind me in the mirror, and there's Freddy, and he starts kind of running those blades through my hair and just Ooh. really enjoying it way too much. And then, of course, the whole dream goes off the rails, and it turned into a horrific scene, and I wake up sweating in my waterbed thinking, am I going to get sucked <laughs> in the waterbed now? Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I... It does cause the heart to stop for a split second, uh, but I never considered that that could actually scare a person to death because that that does happen also. People can get scared to death. I mean, we hear about this every now and then. It comes up, well, they they died of fright uh, as soon as they saw something. Um, Yeah. And and that's a real phenomenon. So – yeah, and the cultural conditions we were talking about that plagued the Hmong in the late 70s, that was not unique to their population. This um, you know, profound sense of helplessness and disconnection from a culture. You know, that can that could happen to anybody. Oh, it sure can. It can happen yeah. even if you're born in America with a, a pure, as you said, apple pie uh, American family. Uh, any one of us at any time can feel uh, a, a disconnect. In fact, it's almost an intrinsic feeling that we all have, that we're all sort of disconnected from each other. Oh, I'm all I'm in this alone and nobody understands how I feel, especially teenagers. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they feel very disconnected and misunderstood um, all the time. And that's that's kind of a trauma to walk around with. At least, at the very, very least, it's incredibly disturbing thing to walk around with and, and carry that kind of baggage around. And so that would, you know, be fertile soil for nightmares. Absolutely. And we have something to hang it on. We have Freddy Krueger. We have... Um this iconic totemic uh, figure that can just pop up right there anytime that our bodies or minds decide to create the conditions for it. Right. And and that's terrifying because those conditions may be uh, presenting themselves without us realizing it. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, I mean, Absolutely. It, we could be going about our day and not even realize that we're sort of setting up the perfect conditions uh, for for something like this to enter our nightmares now now i'm going to ask you you went out on a limb 
I'm going to go out on a limb here, Adam, and ask you. You have my permission to go out on a limb. All right. Well, very good. The bow didn't break. Everything's cool with me, so I think it'll be fine with you. All right. Well, this is an odd, kind of an odd question. Um, Is there, because something about this came up last night in conversation, and it never has quite left me, because it is uh, a phenomenon throughout the paranormal that is not talked about much at all. Um, is there some kind of sexual subtext <laughs> to Freddy Krueger and our nightmares? There's, uh, yes, yes, there's absolutely a sexual subtext, um, but it's multifaceted and it changes, uh, a lot. In the first movie, um, Freddy is, is lecherous and he, um, He's sort of parodying uh, sexuality, you know, Um, because he's dealing with teenagers and there's the typical like 80s slasher movie thing of, you know, uh, hormone driven teenagers, you know, wanting to be sexually active and uh, the idea that a monster has to come and punish them or whatever. And Um, a number of them do die in their beds. Yes. Or the shower. Um, yeah, of course, the shower. Oh, well, God. oh no, yeah, no. Heather's attacked in the shower. She doesn't get killed, or the bath, rather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, that's yeah, right. The, that's right. Yes, that wonderful, that wonderful scene where she's pulled for, for the bath into like the deepest depths of the ocean. One second, right, um, and the the claws come up from between her legs yeah. out through the water. Oh God! Oh my God! Yeah, yeah, and that's extraordinarily sexual of imagery. Like she's naked in the bathtub with Freddy's claw, you know, slowly drifting, you know towards your crotch. Um, but it's not, it's, 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 it's sexual, but it's also not sexual. It's, it's more about power and violence. It's, it's closer to, you know, to rape than it is to, to sex. Um, mm. okay. it's, it, it's, it's like the, the, the fear of the, the, the adolescent fear, uh, that, that might come across with, with having sex before you've had it. You know, when you're a virgin and you don't know what's going on and you think that it's going to be really bad, mm-hmm. uh, that's probably more with the psychic space where Freddy lives in. But that's mm-hmm. just about the first movie. Um, and the second movie, which is uh, a, a huge quality drop from the first one, except for one thing, which is that it's, there's this incredible homoerotic subtext to it. You notice that too? I think everybody has. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it, there was. I mean, it was almost overdriven. Um, yeah, it's, you in know. hindsight, you know, watching in 2016, it's obvious. Mm-hmm. At the time, I think it was in the 80s. It was not. I, I think it was just you know you just accepted it for what it was. But it's almost like um, I don't know. Do, it, did you ever watch that show, Arrested Development, um, that comedy show? I did, I did. But look, we're we're up against a break here, so oh, we'll yeah, have sure, to sure, talk sure. about that when we come well, back. There, there was a joke about um, a book called A Man Inside Me, and that's kind of what that movie's about, too. <laughs> it kind of is. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. Well, my goodness. Uh, we are going to open up the phone lines here when we come back from this break. We'll start taking some of your calls with my guest, Adam Bolger, and we'll continue to discuss nightmares back in just a moment we'll have a few more questions for adam bolger my guest tonight we're talking about the true events that inspired west craven's a nightmare on elm street 
And we are opening up the phone lines now. And what I'd like to do is collect your nightmares. I'm sure you've had them. Also, uh... Any kind of sleep paralysis experiences you've had, uh, we want to hear about that as well. Absolutely want to hear about that tonight. Uh, so you're welcome to call in. Uh, like I said, I got a couple more questions for Adam. He did an interview with the one and only Hunter Thompson, and I can't resist any longer. I, I've held back all night uh, because we are here to talk about nightmares. But I want to ask him about Hunter Thompson and let the phone calls roll in from all of you. So if you didn't catch the phone numbers that have been given out throughout the program tonight, well, you can go to midnightinthedesert.com and the phone numbers are all there. Also, you can call us uh, via Skype if you have it on your device. Uh, If you're in North America, just when you have Skype open, go in and type MITD11 into the Skype search bar and then hit the call button. You will find yourself joining our conversation tonight, which is what we want you to do. And also, if you're in any other corner of the globe, you can reach the program by typing into Skype, MITD21. We have a special international line just for those overseas listeners, and I look forward to hearing from all of you. Um, And so I'd like to welcome Adam back to the program. Uh, Welcome back, Adam. is there? Uh, thank you. Is there anything here that we haven't covered? Is there anything I should have asked that I haven't asked about what we've talked about so far tonight? Um, you know, I think you've done a pretty thorough job. <laughs> well, I just want to make sure we get the whole story out. I mean, it's not sure. often. I mean, there, I mean sure, there, there are more details that we can um, tease out as we go along. Um, there's, I don't think there's anything that we've really been remiss in discussing, though. All right. Well, cool, uh, because it's it's just not often that I get to talk about a subject like this. And sure. And that's kind of the whole idea of long-form talk radio. You know, you don't have to be, <laughs> you know, confine yourself to a soundbite. You can uh, really ha- take the time to, to draw out a given subject. And this is a fascinating subject, Um and there are a lot of people that want to talk to you, so I hope you're Great. all right with the audience being unleashed upon you. Uh, oh, I love it. Bring it on. <laughs> all right, cool. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe then I'll hold my questions about Hunter Thompson for a little bit later, uh, although it's just – it's killing me uh, because I <laughs> admired him quite a bit. And, uh, well, I will just hold that. Uh, let us proceed right to the phones then. Uh, sure. Over to line two. You're on the air with Adam Bolger. Welcome to the program. Uh, hi, Heather. It's Tom from Maryland. Well, hello. Hope you're having a good evening. Uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I I had a friend uh, back when I was in England in the 80s who uh, watched just about every Freddy movie that we ever made on watch. Uh, but uh, like I was saying uh, when we were on break... I have a recurring nightmare. I mean, just about every dream hmm. that I remember for decades is a variation on the same thing. Oh, and what is that? Yeah. I, I mean, I hope it's something we can talk about on the air. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, it is. But before I get too deep into it, uh, to set it up a little, um, listeners should know I own every Godzilla movie ever made. And this will play <laughs> into this. Okay. It's just my personal form of brain candy. Okay. So I have this recurring nightmare that I'm being hunted. 
I may be being hunted in the snow, I may be hunted running down the street, whatever, but I'm always being pursued. And when I look back, I know that my pursuer is just beyond the next corner, next, just beyond the next ridge, just, you know, just out of sight. Mm-hmm. And of course, I am not um, you know, I'm running and running and running, and I'm not about to wait around it to get whatever's going to happen to me. Anyway, so uh, I'm telling my friend Rachel about this, and she says, well, you know, you should stop and, and wait for, you know, and confront whatever it is chasing you, whatever that fear is. Okay, so I'm having a dream, and I'm being hunted again, and I run into... Uh, old World War II type radio shack. So I'm in this little tin hut thing. And I have a kind of lucid dreaming moment. And I realize I'm yeah. dreaming and I'm dreaming this again. Uh, I'll do like Rach said, you know, I'll, I'll turn around and I'll figure out what it is that's been chasing me all these years. And at that moment, Big Green starts stomping on the radio shack. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah, and I'm there like, no, uh, good idea. Get back to running. <laughs> wow, and you've had this dream over and over again for decades. For decades, yes. And you had I'm it without years knowing old now, what was the first time I remember it. Pardon, in my uh, what's that, Adam? You you had the dream without knowing what was pursuing you. Ever, for thirty huh. years now. Wow. I, I just know I'm being hunted, and I know that I need to keep moving. <laughs> yeah, you knew you were in danger, but you didn't know from what. No. Yeah, it's interesting. And, but you're certain that it—you were certain in the dream that it was something dangerous. Oh yes, yes. I'm okay. I'm on, on the edge of panic in the dream. I am moving. Right. So you're not like. <laughs> It's not like a, a hard day's night where you're the Beatles and a bunch of girls are after you or anything like that. No, no, no. Okay. No, what, like, it's nothing good. Chasing me, yeah, whatever's chasing me means me no good at all. <laughs> and then you, and then it turned out to be Godzilla. My goodness. Well, in this particular variation, yeah, when uh, when I tar- try to uh, turn and face it, uh, big, big Green is stomping on the thing, and I, I find that kind of amusing, but given my own personal uh, taste in movies, it's not completely a surprise. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, did you have a specific question for Adam, or did you just want to uh, uh, give me nightmares with your nightmare? <laughs> oh, kind of the second. Yeah, I just okay. thought I'd... Sh- yeah. we're talking about well, I think that's, tonight, I that's, I that's really interesting, that because it shows how much pop culture will inform you know what we dream about, and it takes on you know a secondary depth that... Um, I, I, that you probably wouldn't expect it to. Like I like Godzilla movies, but um, you know I I don't think about them that hard. And you know I I, the, I think that Tom and I you know share uh, an assessment of them as kind of like as candy. Like they're really fun. They're fun movies, but there is um, you know there there is an inherent terror to them. Um, like you know the the first Godzilla movie particularly. It's you know. Uh, a bald-faced metaphor for um, you know the the atom bomb and Hiroshima and the devastation that, that was wrought upon Japan. I mean, it does come from a there isn't there is an element embedded within it of profound danger and fear. Right. Well, 
What strikes me is that he's had that dream repeatedly for 30 years. Uh, I want to thank you, Tom, for the call. And uh, now I have something new to have nightmares about. Appreciate it. Thank you very, very much. Uh, over to the first-time caller line. You're on the air. Welcome to the show. Hello, hello? I can, but it sounds like you're on speakerphone. Yeah, I'm driving. I'm sorry. No, uh, I was calling because uh, I've had more than three experiences of the with the shadow people and the sleep paralysis all at the same time. And, uh, it, you know, I thought back then I, I didn't know what was going on. It just happened like about uh, 20 years ago. I remember the very first experience. Uh, I mean, it just completely shocked and scared the hell out of me. You know, after that, uh, the second one was about the same. And it was the third one where um, I, I used prayer. And then after that, it was more like uh, I was always ready for them, you know. But the last, the, the third and the one and a couple after that, it felt like multiple uh, shadow people instead of just one in the beginning. So, uh, I was just sharing some experiences I had in the past. I mean, you know, to hear y'all talk about it, and then with the Freddy Krueger, that's, that's pretty crazy. And then the <laughs> right, well, Freddy's the ultimate shadow person. Mm. But, I mean, that sounds... I, I wish you had better audio so we could talk for longer, but uh, you are driving, so I'm not going to not gonna hold that against you. I <laughs> do appreciate the call, um, but, uh, but speakerphone is difficult. Um, y- you know trying to overcome the shadow people only to have more of them show up. Yeah, that sounds pretty terrifying, but I was more interested in um, that he turned to prayer, you know, that he called upon a a benevolent higher power to cast away the shadow people and found success with that. Mm -hmm. Of course, his, you know, whatever is bringing the shadow people on, um, you know, if you want to say it's a supernatural explanation, I think it's a psychological explanation. Um, you know, he felt like, uh, that wasn't sufficient somehow, or that he still needed this tower, this terror to be enacted on him in a, in, in even a greater way. So, yeah. So, so good luck out there. There can be more than one shadow people. That's what I just learned. Oh, of course there can. I've heard stories of people that have they they have uh, three or four shadow people surround their bed, and not only that, but there's also the Hat Man. Um, yeah. There's yeah. the Slender Man, which in a in a weird way, the Slender Man is kind of like Freddy Krueger in that it comes from our imaginations, and now people and now it's kind of real. Yeah, people report having encounters with this. Slenderman um, over and over again, and we know for a fact that this is an invention of the internet. Yet yeah, people yeah. are continually, uh, continuously reporting encounters with it. So, um, but on the uh, on the prayer subject, uh, whatever it is you've got in your spiritual toolbox, I'm all for it. Uh, use yeah, absolutely. Whatever you've got that it, that is going to work, and I mean, if if you've um, you know, as they say, accepted Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior, well, then he's going to be the one to call upon in these situations. And he's going right. to, uh, I would say, 60% of the time, people that have paranormal encounters of various types will say, and then I called on the name of Jesus and it stopped. 
Yeah, so, yeah. you know, anything that can work for all these things that we just don't completely understand, I am all for it. Sure. And it and it doesn't necessarily have to be Jesus, but you're right. Uh, it often is. Um, and, and sometimes it's people who were not particularly religious beforehand that call upon Jesus and they find it work and they, they find that calling upon him works and they have a profound religious convergence, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and they become very religious after that. Yeah. Or, but it could be um, a wood spirit. It could be something um, – you would know that this better than I would as, as a witch, but, you know, it could be something, some kind of elemental force or something of that, uh, that's, you know, something pagan, something that's not necessarily um, uh, Christian or, or, or uh, uh, Abramic. Is that it? Is that what it well, is? you know, I would just, I would say whatever God or deity, big G or little G, whatever feels uh, the closest to your soul, I think is going to be the right one to call upon. And of course, yeah. they take many, many, many names, um, you know, whatever it is that's the closest to you um, that you feel is going to listen to you. I think that's the point. Right. Call whatever you would call in your darkest hour. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, the answer, it, you're probably not going to have to think about it too hard. You know, it's like you're the the thing that you wish was there to help you. Right. It's going to probably be instantaneous uh, when yeah. you, when you're in one of these situations. Uh, and over to line one, you're on the air. Are, uh, can you turn your device down, please? Okay, your device is up. I can hear that loud and clear. Could you please turn? Now I sound like art. Please turn your device down. <laughs> it's not such a bad thing. I well, uh, you are on the air, okay, and your device is still on. Uh, you turn that down, please, and then you can be on the air. He was going to and it's still on. Okay, so look, you're going to have to turn your device off, down, or something, and then call back. All right, over to line two. You're on the air with Adam Bolger. Welcome to the program. Hello, hello, this is Alan. How are you doing? Well, doing pretty good. I hope we're not uh, going to give you nightmares on the road tonight. Uh, no, uh, but I have a, something very unique that he may be interested in. Uh, uh, it's kind of a combination of three things that happened to me. I've uh, had a recurring dream my entire life. I've uh, had uh, two, three different episodes of sleep paralysis and a couple of... Uh, out of body experiences, and one of one of these times happened all together where I thought uh, I was actually dead. Oh wow! Uh, the recurring dream. Uh, the uh, recurring dream basically is more like a more like a memory. Uh, I'm in war. Uh, I believe it's Korean War, and I end up wounded, and I, I die every time uh, in this dream. And uh, what uh, happens when you with, die? Uh, uh, every time it's with a uh, a grenade uh, to to save the rest of my uh, fellow soldiers because I'm dying. So I wait till they get up on me and I pull the pin and uh, die. Well, I had um at this particular time I had a was in college and went on a ten day trip where I got to meet Ronald Reagan and several people and and uh, for ten days I slept fourteen hours. And when huh. I came back, I went to bed and slept 22 hours. And during that time, I had this recurring dream again. And when I died, I actually went into sleep paralysis. I, I woke up, 
but I could not wake up. You know what I'm saying? I, I couldn't yeah. open my eyes. Yeah, you're trapped in your sleep. body, in your bed. You know, yeah, and I'm, uh, it's not the first time, but this is more extreme than any other time. And I'm mm-hmm. screaming at myself, wake up, get up, get up. Uh, but it's almost like a like it's plural. I'm saying we got to get up. We got to get up. <laughs> oh, right. Just just sit up as fast as I could, and finally swung my legs over to the side of the bed. Walked up to the um, dresser, looked in the mirror, and I'm in the bed. Oh wow! And I turn around, and I look, and I walk over, and I said, "How did I die?" I said, yeah. "I finally died. I dreamed about it my whole life, and now I'm dead." And then suddenly I realized uh, I can't be dead. I'm snoring, <laughs> and uh, and I started looking around. I said, "Oh, I'm, I'm having an out of body experience." I said, "This is cool, yeah. you know." So I sit back down on the bed and lay down, and then I finally wake up. So I kind of had a combination yeah. of all the three, three things you've been talking about. So, Alan, let me ask so, you a quick question: When you would die yeah. in your dreams about combat, would you wake up at the point of death? Yes. Okay. I would. After I would die, I would wake up shortly thereafter. And it's the same. It's the same dream. I was running. We were uh, retreating down the same path. It's a jungle, and uh, I turn around and shoot a man just that was firing at us, and I thought he was dead. And when I took off, I was shot in the back, and my fellow soldiers was trying to help me and take me and I wouldn't let them I said look they're coming they're going to kill you just go I'm dying you can't save me and they left and and uh, he, he left me with a grenade and, and I put it on my chest and put my helmet over it and waited till they got there and I pulled the pin and smiled at them and we were gone and then I'd wake up are, are you a veteran? no I'm not I, I wanted to be but I got injured when I was a teenager I tried I uh, qualified for a nuclear submarine and couldn't go in Okay. Because of my injury, and, uh, but um, I got family spending in the military and uh, uh, all of that, and I had planned to, but couldn't. But uh, yeah, well, it's just uh, that is that is an incredibly powerful, powerful dream there, and also uh, a unique paranormal experience. Um, I, I really appreciate you calling in with all that. That is also deeply personal. Um, so so I appreciate it. Uh, wow. Um, d- any thoughts on this? Have you ever heard of such a thing? Can people have intertwined experiences, uh, experiences with multiple paranormal phenomena involving sleep at the same time? Adam? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our dreams are incredibly varied, uh, and any kind of phenomenon is possible. Um, you know, an outer body experience is, it's very rare, but they happen. You know, you can, you, you can see yourself and sometimes it, you know, that can be, uh, that that could take the form of a lucid dream and be quite pleasant, or it can be an incredible, incredibly unpleasant feeling of disassociation and disconnection. Man, I I can't imagine uh, being in that space, being in a dream like that, where he was he was willfully letting himself go to save the rest of the team. Yeah. And and it almost makes a person wonder: Was he experiencing uh, an alternate timeline of what it would have been like if he had <laughs> maybe joined the uh, military? And is that maybe part of what our dreams and nightmares are? Are we experiencing a glimpse 
into uh, what our lives would have been had we made another decision. Are we looking through the tear in the very fabric of space and time? Anything is possible. Or it could be some kind of sublimated desire. You know, like, uh, uh, you know, he wants to be, maybe he, uh, some part of him wants to, wants to be heroic, you know, wants to sacrifice himself in a, in a meaningful way. And, uh, you know, that's, that, that's very important to him somehow. And that directs the dream. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's as simple as that. Well, it could be, and you know, you can't fault a person for that. We all want to use our life in a in a in a useful way. Uh, to, sure, no, to, it's yeah, it's it's good. It's a good thing to sort of benefit uh, the the greater good, right? And yeah. it sounds like that's kind of what he was talking about. So I, I find that interesting. But you know, then it brings up this subject of if you die in your sleep. Right, you witness your death or experience your death in your sleep. Is that going to kill you? Because that's what happened in A Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, Freddy comes in your dreams, kills you, and you die in real life. Yeah, yeah. So, it's sort of like uh, when you dream of falling, you never land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've always been terrified of uh, of dreams where I die. I've, I've always I've had. Uh, a couple of those. Most of the time, I just get injured in my dreams. I don't yeah. actually die all the way. I've had a couple uh, where that did happen. And when you're in the moment, uh, it feels incredibly visceral. Yeah. Incredibly yeah. And then you wake up and you feel incredible relief. Right. You know, I've, have you ever had that um, sensation where you're you're patting your hands over your chest and your arms? You're like, I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm okay. No, not specifically. I don't have that kind of physicality. Usually it comes very quickly to me, mm. you know, um, because my, um, my, my, my bad dreams are usually, I'm very confused, you know? And again, this gets back to psychology. Like I think I try to, um, you know, I try to think sharply and analytically in my waking life. And so, you know, maybe I have this fear of being confused in my dreams that comes out, um, and so then that clarity comes back upon waking, and it's really welcome usually. Mm, I see. Yeah, the, I, actually, I, the the worst dreams I've ever had, the ones that really uh, stayed with me, is um, happened as I've gotten older. Because um, you, as you get older, more people close to you die. That's just the nature of life, you know. Mm-hmm. And so when I dream of people who are dead, and then I realize that I've had conversations with dead people. I find that to be profoundly disturbing and, oh. and very and sad, you know. Well, now you've hit on something I do know a little something about. Uh, the, the, uh, the It's called after-death communications, and it is a real phenomenon. And people say that when you get those communications through your dreams, that it really is your loved ones attempting to, t- to talk to you. Yeah, uh, I would like to think that. That would be nice. I remember, I remember one dream I had about someone who died of cancer, and then I wanted to – I realized that they were dead in the middle of the dream, and I wanted to warn them that they were going to die of cancer. And that realization, you know, shocked me awake, and it was – I just was, it, you know, so disheartened. I bet. Is, yeah, so, you know – I bet that had to be very disturbing uh, for you. Well, look, we got to take another break here. Adam Bolger is my guest tonight, and 
Look, the phone lines are open, and I want to hear all about your nightmares. We'll be right back, and I'm Heather Wade. And once you hear the show audio on your device, whatever it is you're calling in on, then just hang on the line. Once you hear the show audio, you know that you're about to be on the air, and we certainly welcome you to join the conversation tonight with my guest, Adam Bulger. We're talking all about nightmares and the real events that inspired a nightmare on elm street apparently there really is now adam's going to have this terminology down uh, much better than i am but there really is a phenomenon where there are unexplained sleep deaths where they have no idea why you just die in your sleep this is a real phenomenon. Uh, and we're taking your calls tonight. So what I'd like to remind everyone is uh, I know you're probably listening to the show uh, while you're dialing in. So when you hear the show audio on your device that you are calling in on, please turn the volume all the way down. There's a 30-second delay between me and you, and that's going to get real confusing for all of us. Uh, so I'd like to get right back into the calls. But first, welcome Adam Bolger back to the program. Um, one thing I haven't asked you tonight so far, Adam, is this. Okay. Uh, it, it, do, how likely do you think it is that another wave of sleep deaths happen? Uh, I would say fairly unlikely. I'm going to be optimistic on this because um, they, they do have the syndrome down, the Brugada syndrome. They've mapped it out, the mechanism in the heart, and they know who's at risk and how to prevent it. Um, that said, I think that you know it could break out in a population that might not be aware of uh, of those medical solutions to it. Um, it, it, you know, some kind of remote culture or just some, you know, maybe not not even that remote. Just people who don't have access to medical care. Uh, it could hit them in a wave. It mm -hmm. could hit at any time. Well, it seemed to come and go without. Um, cause or explanation or yeah. you know without any kind of real reason to it and so it would seem that then it could this could flourish up again uh within some well, the, kind of culture I mean, the, time. my speculative explanation for why it stopped afflicting the, the mong in the 80s um is that they were they successfully assimilated into america that they the, whatever collective trauma that was happening passed um, and also just it, um, uh, they're just more comfortable in America they're, and they were able to find lives here. Right. Well, let's hope that it doesn't happen again. And on over to the phones <laughs> on line one, you're on the air with Adam Bolger. Welcome to the program. Hello. hello. Yes, sir. Hi. Well, hello there. Are Chef, you, hi. are Chef. you, what's that? It's Trucker Gary. Trucker Gary here. Well, good to hear from you. You probably are on speakerphone, but you probably have <laughs> your hands on the wheel. That's why, right? Yes. Why I'm not sounding too good. Well, I'm glad to have you as a part of the program, sir. What's yeah. on your mind? How are you doing tonight, Gary? Good, Adam. How you doing? I'm doing great, man. I'm in uh, I'm in New Jersey. It's three o'clock in the morning. My wife and my daughter are asleep. So is my cat. Jersey. Well, you're in Jersey. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Well, okay. Since the, since you said that, I just wanted to have a, uh, say a shout out to the Jersey Boys. <laughs> <laughs> they sound like they'd be they sound like they'd be fun to party with. 
Yeah, they sure do, right? Uh, they're regular callers uh-huh. into the program. Oh, cool, Adam. yeah. yeah. You, those guys should dial up. <laughs> right down the road for me. So you've been listening to the program tonight, and what are your thoughts yeah. there, Gary? Well, it's a great, great show so far. Um, well, you know, it reminds me when I was eight, I had a sleepover at a friend's house, and we're getting ready to go to bed, and he was Italian, and... Uh, not that that means anything, but his mom, you know, she was an old-fashioned Italian lady, and she made us say our prayers, and she told us before we went to sleep that we need to sleep on our stomachs, not on our backs. And I asked him later on, you know, we're talking, I'm like, well, why, why is that? And he's like, well, because <clears throat> you open yourself up to possession or spiritual attacks or anything like that. And huh. so, to this day, to this very day, I sleep on my stomach. And the reason being is because I did have a sleep paralysis instance when I was 16. It was really weird because I never took naps. I was a hyperactive yeah. teenager. Well, <clears throat> I laid down and it felt like I was sleeping for three hours. It was probably, you know, early afternoon. And it was sunny. I'm laying there, a deep sleep. All of a sudden, I wake up, and I can't move. And it terrified me because of everything I've been told in the past. And um, it happened to my mom a few years uh, prior to that, and that's what scared me even more because my aunt, who was very psychic, told my mother that that was most likely a demon trying to possess you. And what my mom did is she focused on a picture of Jesus that was on the mirror on her dresser, and she snapped out of it. She got out of the paralysis. So I pretty much did the same thing. I prayed to Jesus and snapped out of it. Yeah. Are you so a, are question, you a religious person? You know, when I was younger, I was. Now I'm more spiritual. Okay. Because I found that most religions are just corrupt, and I think God. Uh, you know, religions in your heart, you know, within yourself. Sure. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, uh, you called upon Jesus. But I do, I do believe in Jesus. I, right. really, I really do, but I, I have different beliefs in Jesus. And I don't right. want to get all into that and everything, but the thing, the thing Adam, I was going to ask you is, um, you know, so after the fact, I've heard over the years that it's, Sleep paralysis is the beginning stages of astral projection and out of body, and that you should just not be fearful and go with it, and you'll actually be able to leave your body. So now it's like, and I think Art's mentioned this in the past, like, you know, I, I think I screwed it up for myself because now I have this inner <laughs> fear of sleep paralysis, and therefore now I can't do it. So I don't know, is it is it a beginning stage of astral projection, or is it something else with the shadow creatures like you're talking about yeah i I don't know now now i'm like confused i think it could be a variety (laughs) of things and i i would definitely say you have not screwed it up by being afraid of it i think if maybe if it revisits you can bear that in mind and maybe um whereas in the you know in your earlier uh experience your belief in christ or you know just calling upon christ uh, helped you out maybe just believing that it could it could the possibility of a positive experience 
could make it a positive experience. You know, we were talking about the nocebo effect before, and, you know, just maybe this could be just a, um, a, a placebo in a very profound way. In the way that the nocebo is deadly for the Hmong, maybe this could be a placebo for you to explore astral projection. You know, I do find it interesting. I just recently had a guest on, Louis Monero uh, was on, and he was talking about out-of-body experiences. And, and one thing he said that I thought was pretty interesting was that uh, everyone, when we're sleeping, we hover a couple of inches above our body. So the caller, <laughs> Gary, he might be on to something there. Uh, and, and maybe a person can get so afraid that they are kind of pushed out of their body. Um, if you can get scared to death, it stand to reason, I would think. I mean, it's not completely out of the question that you could be scared out of your body. Yeah. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, um, this is sort of parallel to talking about Hunter Thompson, but, you know, it's like fear and ecstasy can be, um, you know, very close cousins. Mm. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, whenever Hunter did drugs, he, you know, talked about the fear a lot. Um, but in a way that he kind of embraced it and made it something to be less afraid of, you know, drug induced mm -hmm. paranoia. But, uh, you know, you can do that with, with dreams or you can do that with, maybe you could do that with a, with a sleep paralysis experience. Like maybe you can, um, the, the fear, you know, you can somehow transform your profound feelings of fear into a profound feeling of ecstasy. And that could, you know, uh, bring you to a different state of consciousness. I think it's that you can really, uh, that you're able to take control, uh, and you, you can make it do what you want. I think it would take a profound, um, act of will, a profound, um, determination to, you know, to, 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 to grasp control, but I think it's possible. Well, I certainly appreciate the call and, and the experience. I mean, we are getting some really interesting comments from the audience tonight. And yeah, I, I just absolutely can't stand it. I want to ask you about Hunter Thompson. But at the same time, I don't want to keep people waiting. Uh, let me sure, see sure. here. This Let's just, bring them on. Let's <laughs> talk some folks. This just might be, I don't know if this was the same person that had their device up, but let's try it here. Uh, over okay. to the phones. You're on the air with Adam Bolger. Welcome to the program. Hello, Heather. Well, looky who we've got. It's good to hear your voice. I'm so glad I don't hear mine. <laughs> well, before I, before I get off into the dream thing, um, this is going to sound weird, but when what day is Halloween on? Monday. It's coming Monday, this Monday. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, my see, daughter's a mermaid. I'm a, I'm a bee. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, I had some... But I'm not going to say that. Never mind. Um... No, I, don't want, I don't. I was really going to get out on a limb. I um. I don't want do it. Man, this is the, night for getting out on limbs. Let's um, do it. No. Oh no. I. I. Uh, but what I was saying. The reason I had to ask when Halloween was is because I don't watch television. I haven't yeah. for years. And and just as a side note, um, I raised my kids without television, and they turned out far different than the, the, the kids that they grew up with. And, and they, they enjoyed it. They liked it. They told me they were glad they didn't get raised on television. <laughs> but at any rate, oh, seriously. Um, but anyhow, um, the, uh, the, the previous caller was talking about um, uh, 
sleep paralysis being like the beginning of astral projection. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm not. I've never written a book, but I've been doing this stuff all my life, and I have. Uh, that's that's wrong. <laughs> oh, it is. Yeah. Tell oh, me about hey, that. I have had until I got on until I got my heart prescriptions uh, for uh, high blood pressure, and the one the one I think that stopped the uh, sleep paralysis problem was the one I had a, a horribly irregular heartbeat all my life. Yeah, and sometimes it would just stop completely stop. And I'd have to wait for it to start again, never knowing whether it was going to or not. But it turned out that I was just low on potassium. Okay. Which doesn't make, yeah, but that doesn't make any sense because I eat a lot of bananas and melons. But at any rate, when I started taking the potassium prescription, I've only had one sleep paralysis event since then. Huh. Um, now, in the, in the sleep paralysis, uh, I should uh, uh, lead, uh, tell you something else first. Sure. Years ago, I pro- uh, years ago I programmed myself to remember all my dreams, and, How'd you and do never that? have. Well, it's really quite simple. Um, I believe that we can do anything we can imagine. Period. If you can imagine it, you can do it. So, I wanted to I I wanted to remember my dreams because sometimes I would wake up and I would go, Wow, there was something going on there. You know, and how you, I used to wake up, and you, and I would lose the context of the dream as I became more awake, and it got irritating. So what I did, it didn't take long, um, maybe a couple of months, maybe not that long, probably not that long because I wasn't sidetracked by a lot of other things. But every night when I went laid down to go to sleep, I would just repeat over and over and over again, I will remember all my dreams <laughs> until I fell asleep. Well, yeah, okay, okay, yeah. It, it, at first, it was I didn't think it was such a brilliant thing to do, um, but well, um, they, um, <laughs> there's a lot of dreams that I had when I was younger that were tied to uh, strong personal emotions or or you know frustrations and things, and yeah. you learn you learn a lot about yourself, a lot, and then yeah. after. Yeah, well, after a while, you know, then I got all those crummy things out of the way. And now I have more like uh, adventures in my dreams. I mean, really neat ones. And I don't have nightmares anymore. But, <laughs> and Congratulations. There, and real, huh? Congratulations. That sounds great. Oh, oh they're, um, they're very, uh, I don't know what the, exactly what the medical people, what you guys mean when you say lucid. But um, that means you're aware that you're having a dream. Oh, yes. I'm always aware of that, whether it's a dream. I thank God, because they're just as clear as daytime. And I need some way to separate this experience from those. But one of the the weirdest dream I've ever had. Well, sometimes have you ever had to wake up twice to get back here? Yeah, that's a classic. Okay. Well, I had to wake up. Yeah, I had to wake up three times once. And wow. then, you know the the, twi- the twice thing you know goes on. Yeah, that was a lot. And, but one one morning, hey, I'm, I'm you know I'm dreaming. And I you know well, it's time to wake up. So I wake up and I look around. And I, well, this ain't right. <laughs> this isn't exactly my bedroom. I'm still dreaming. So I woke yeah. up again and and things still weren't right. And I thought, well, now this could get really interesting. How many times are going to have to do this? So, so I finally made it back on the third one. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dream. 
Yeah, dreams are, um, I believe a lot like uh, the Australian Aborigines. Dreams, my dream state, when I'm dreaming, is just as real to me as what I'm doing now, sitting here talking to you. And I'm not sure which one, in which one I'm <laughs> really dreaming. Am I dream? Am I asleep dreaming about you now or what? I don't. That, that's how real they are. Well, if right. this is a dream, sir, I hope no one wakes me up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's all I ask. That, just don't wake yeah. me up. Oh yeah, that could be. But dreams are very, very wonderful. Um, if once I got my early, <laughs> I, I had a, <clears throat> a stressful childhood. And okay. so once I once I got past all of the bottled up nonsense about you know my childhood and a lot of other garbage out of the way. Man, by the way, some of those dreams were real, real screamers. Um, I bet. Yeah, you know, uh, the, you know the old saying, "Face your demons." They're in your yeah, dreams. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, they're in your dreams, and and if you, and at the time I was doing all kinds of things to learn more about myself and the world around me and, and things like that. So, uh, you know, just, I was throwing, I, I think I was doing too many things at once. Well, but, what I'm getting from you, uh, is, is actually really, really cool. Uh, what you're saying is he faced his dreams. Now, yeah. when I have a nightmare and I'm sure when many other people have a nightmare, we tend to want to run away from it. We want it to stop at any cost. We want to run away from it. Uh, but he did the exact opposite. He ran toward the nightmare and told himself to remember all of his dreams, nightmare or not, and face it. I mean, he just said it, uh, face the demons. Yeah. Um, and so maybe that's that's the approach to take. Uh, don't run away from it. Don't try to turn it off or make it stop. It's coming up for a reason. Yeah. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, also, I, I think that that could be a way um, a way that you could fight a, a nightmare. Like we were talking about dream paralysis and like calling upon, um, you know, Jesus or some other spiritual force. You know, um, you get. You could self-actualize. You could call upon your own will. Mm-hmm. Well, it, gosh, I mean, thinking about that, you know, it sounds so easy uh, when he describes it. But okay. then I think about actually doing that and taking those steps, and I get, I get scared all over again. And I'm well, going, I think he was alighting over decades of work with his dream. I think that it was easy in the course of two or three sentences, but I think there were years and years of effort. Yeah, that, I think so. So, as the old saying goes, just take it one nightmare at a time, right? (laughs) That is the old saying, yeah, sure. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Let us see here. We we might have just enough time for for one more. Uh, Over to North American Skype. You're on the air with Adam Bulger. Welcome to the show. Hi, Heather. Hi, Adam. It's Kitty. Hi. Well, good evening. Hi. Hey, um, you were, Adam, you were describing this happening amongst the Hmong people and yeah. maybe the Asian population more generally. I was wondering, did they have any sort of reaction after the first movie came out? Um, you know, I asked, I, 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 I reached out to people in the Hmong community about it and um, they were, 
If they did, I don't know about it. I'm sad to say. Um, they were glad that I wrote the article. Uh, like, there's a among Twitter news service that uh, was very active in promoting my story, um, and they're saying they're glad that the Hmong, you know, got their rightful place in 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 telling the story. But um, but that you know that might have just been general kind of cultural promotion. Well, they might be happy just to have this acknowledged. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, I mean, sometimes, uh, I mean, you got to imagine how traumatizing that would be for an isolated culture uh, within America. You know, they're escaping trauma. Now it's yeah. traumatic to become assimilated to our culture, which is pretty weird anyway. <laughs> I can't imagine being from uh, another culture and it being, you know, a natural type culture where you're out in nature and then being dropped in the middle of all of this. My God, that's a nightmare by itself. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you go from um, nomadic farming to do you want Pepsi with that? Mm, exactly. And do you want that supersized? I mean, it's it's very traumatic. And so uh, it would. It, I would think that they would that be said, happy. Pepsi is delicious. It's a really good drink. Everybody should drink it. Coca-Cola, sir. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> but that is uh, incredibly a traumatic transition that they're going through. And then to have these deaths, just add yeah. that on top of it. You're sitting next to your loved one on the couch. You realize they've opened their eyes. They can't move. They probably had a look of abject horror on their face. Yeah. And then they die. And you can't do anything about it. I mean, how many uh, traumas do we have to stack on top of trauma? Um, yeah. So I would think that they would be happy that uh, this this was just acknowledged at all. Yeah, I mean they're still going through some trauma now. Like it isn't all over. Um, like they're uh, the you know they're I, I don't know this. I, I know we don't have very much time, so I don't want to get really into it. But yeah, there's still uh, a lot of complications between the the general American uh, population and the Hmong. Like things still flare up. Ah, uh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, and and some of it's um, some of it's actually their fault. Like they're still uh, the, you know, if you're going to read reports of Hmong like still trying to do child marriages and things of that nature, um, and you know, we're American society isn't perfect, but you know, we're evolved beyond that point. Right, um, right. But, you know, they are going to try to bring their practices uh, from their culture here. Right, for better or for worse. Right. Um, or, yeah, they're – yeah, they, I, Google search the Hmong. I, I, I could talk about this for about an hour, and it's <laughs> it's very, very complicated, and I think I, I – I think that Heather wants to wrap everything up. <laughs> well, not so much. I mean, we have we have uh, still some program left here. Um, I, I do appreciate sure. you bringing up that question. Uh, that's Kitty Mama. She also is a frequent caller into the program. Um, and I wish- oh yeah. By the way, I was really delighted to hear from a woman. That was nice. <laughs> There are females that listen to this show, actually, very intelligent ones, almost all of them. Uh, but yeah, oh, we- I'm sure. No, it's just it's nice to hear because um, you know I've been a man all my life, and really? uh, you know I, I think there's a, a I think there's a profound difference between um, dreaming when you're a man and a woman, mm-hmm. and and it's always interesting to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate the call and. Um, 
actually wish we did have more time uh, to talk about that a little bit more, but we will. We got to take a break. We'll come back from the break, and I'm still taking calls about your nightmares. That's what we're doing tonight. My guest is Adam Bulger, and we'll be right back. I'm Heather Wade. Well, I can't think of anything better to do after the midnight hour than talk about nightmares. With all of you and my guest, Adam Bolger, I mean, that that is my kind of night right here, and this is where we find ourselves. So I'd like to welcome Adam back to the program. Uh, Adam, how you doing? I'm doing very well, Heather. After that description, you sound like a super fun lady. Well, of course I am. <laughs> <laughs> of course I am. This was not up for debate, was it? No, I just wanted to make, you know, the, 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 the subtext, you know, I wanted to bring that up, make it plain. Cool deal, cool deal. Well, I don't know how used to uh, long-form radio you are, and I know that it's, what, 3.30 in the morning for you over there? It's 3.32, and uh, I wanted to let your listeners know that there's um, a spider crawling along my wall, awesome. in case anybody needed some uh, some nightmare fuel. Perfect. That, that, that yeah. sets the perfect scene. So then are you ready to dive back into calls? Cause oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'd love they, to talk to some folks. Oh, yeah. They're waiting to talk to you. Uh, so let's just hit it. Uh, over on, uh, well, to the phones. You're on the air with Adam Bolger. Welcome to the show. What's shaking, Heather? Everything is shaking tonight. You know how it is. Uh, I'm up and jumping. So, Adam, I got a few things I, got a few things I want to tell you about that. Um, I met Wes Craven in 1997. And he told oh, me that's great. about that. But, and I'll tell you that, but I'm going to tell you something funny first, okay? I sure, I always want to hear something kid, funny. I, I used to scare my kids with Freddy Krueger, okay? I used to scare yeah. all the kids around the I was like, look at Freddy, you know, and I let her up. I'd take one, two, Freddy, you know, the beautiful Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and so one night, I was, I, took my, I, was, I told my kids I was outside playing basketball with Freddy Krueger. And my daughter said, well, did, didn't the ball, didn't his nails pop the ball? I said, no, he took them off and stuck them over on the first. <laughs> and, so, and so they were all laughing. They said, okay, he must be your friend. But I, then I said, he started singing. Sometimes I dream. He is me. You got to see that's how I dream to be. If I could like Mike, I want to be like Mike. You know that Gatorade commercial? Uh-huh. Sure. I want to be like Mike. And so they singing. I was oh, look, it's cool. <laughs> and, then, like, and so that was really fun. But all right. So in 1997, I was talking less crazy. And he okay. told me that uh, he gave me two, told me three stories, but this one is what I remember very clearly. And he said that this kid had moved, this family had moved to this house, like, maybe six months and stuff like that. And, and the little boy kept saying, he said, he can't go to sleep. He, I can't go to sleep. That brought man going to come get me. And so they took him, took him to the doctor. They would t- took medicine. He brought him back home. And they were looking at him. He fell asleep. Well, dad carried him back to the room. They all went to bed. They woke up to blood curdling scream, okay? And they ran in the room. Do you remember in the movie when Heather Vettel, Van Landekamp had her, her hair, got, she had a white streak of hair, she got scared? Yeah, yeah the movie, sure. And, well, the kid's hair was completely white, his eyes were bugged out like that. He was dead. It's not like no dose, not like, it's some kind of like um, that many, some kind of no dose kind of fills up on this, up on this uh, pillow, and they found a coffee maker in the closet. But when the coroner got there, Take the butt off the bed. They found the claws that were around his ankle, like Freddie's claw. And so, what happened um, back to get 58 to 61, something like that? The staff, they, they were having problems in this place where it was on Elm, it was on Elm Street. He decided to keep Elm Street because there's an Elm Street in every town. They decided to keep that, and that's the same exact address, too. Um, also, with the FK, I don't know if that's the, that's the initials of someone, but I don't know if it's the FK. 
Freddy Krueger, whatever the case is. But anyway, so what he did, um, that somebody had been killed, messed with the kids, messed with the kids, stuff like that in this neighborhood. So that's kind of true. They burnt, it, burnt them up in the house. So that's where they rebuilt the house and everything like that. And that makes kid movies with so that's the story he told me about that one. That was the one when uh, Johnny Depp was across the bed, across the room, across the street. Yeah, yeah in his sure. Bed. That's the story. That's where that was, all that was influenced by that by that one story he told me. And I was like, what? I was like, I'm sorry, kid. that is just (laughs) terrifying uh wow well thank you for the call and um you know i I bet he's not the only one that used to scare his kids with freddy krueger no 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 even um even will smith the the biggest actor in america he's a he's a freddy krueger fan he had a whole rap song about freddy krueger oh yeah did he I had a friend actually, um, you know, uh, when you're, when your friends are sort of just leaving home and they're getting their first apartments, they kind of, well, we don't exactly know how to furnish an apartment, right? So <laughs> right, sure. One of the a things. A lot of tapestries. Yeah, exactly. A lot of tapestries. A lot of, uh, a lot of tapestries kind of draped over boxes with a lamp on top, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, a lot of candles. Uh, yeah. And one of the things that my friend had when he got his first place was, a much bigger than life. I think this thing was eight foot tall. Freddy Krueger cutout. And oh, he Jesus! Just, what kind of sadist would do that? I know. I know. It was it's startling. Anybody that walked into his place was instantly just whoa. Okay, do you have right. to have it in the living room? You could put that like on the back patio or something. Ease people into that. Don't just all of a sudden Freddy Krueger. But no, and he had. Um, he had one arm up with the claws, and, yeah, and he was just kind of yeah. looking at you and grinning. And uh, yeah, that that it was so weird to sit there and try and have an actual conversation in his living room with you know the bricks and boards and the futon couches and the whole nine uh, with Freddy Krueger. Just uh, you, it was a cardboard cutout, Adam. But yeah, that seems really super chill. Like a place where I'd want to have some fondue, maybe watch a movie. <laughs> right. But it was uh, it was just a cardboard cutout, but it was still like this imposing presence. Like you kept kind of looking over your shoulder like really seriously, man. Can you like put that in another room or <laughs> does that have to be here right now? Yes, yes, it does. And he was so proud of it. I don't know where he got it. Probably some thrift store or something, but it just – startled me uh, so much and the whole conversation tonight made me just remember that i don't know but it freaked all of us out um, yeah yeah i don't think that you should have any freddy stuff around i think that's that's not good no 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 not too good i think yeah. though that it would be very very terrifying just to have a replica of his glove just kind of hanging out on the bedside table you know i once found a, a halloween store like a version of his glove, like a spirit Halloween store version of his glove like mm-hmm. in a child's park. I was, I was at a playground with my daughter, like, you know, and she was like, my daughter's about three right now. And, um, I was pushing her on a swing and I just like walked by his glove that somebody had like, thrown in a, in a bush. And it was the, the most scary thing I could have seen in the middle of the day. Oh, Oh my God. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Okay, you win. <laughs> Back to the phones. Uh, you are on the air with Adam Bolger. Welcome to the show. Good evening. Hi, Adam. Hi, how are you? Pretty good. How are you doing tonight? Well, you've already answered that like three times tonight, so I'll spare you. <laughs> I'm still doing well, though. <laughs> good. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> well, um, actually, I've got a question for you, and I'd like Great. to share um, 
my own sleep paralysis story as well. Um, yeah. It's nothing nothing really paranormal. But before I even get into that, uh, is it okay if I go ahead and give a shout out to my buddy Vinny that's listening right now? Well, sure. As long as you just use his first name, you can shout out to anybody you want. Well, shout out to Vinny. He, uh, he's been, I just got him hooked on your show. He's been listening with us the last couple of nights. Well, I'll tell and him hello. Funny. Hey, Vinny, what's up? <laughs> Yo, Vinny. Just a, it, what's up? Just yesterday, just yesterday, he was painting a Freddy Krueger-themed painting. So it was <laughs> kind of a, a nice little coincidence. <laughs> oh, there's my dude. But yeah. Anyway. What's up, Vinny? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I had to give him a shout out. But I'll uh, get to my story here. I've only experienced sleep paralysis twice in my entire life. And well, that's uh, the enough. second time was you know, yeah, one time is enough. Yeah. But um this one happened probably about I think like two months ago. I was just laying in bed and then I you know, I woke up, couldn't move, had this uh intense feeling of like electricity going from my toes all the way up to my chest, like in waves. Huh. And uh, accompanying that was, like, this sense of just pure visceral fear, and I had no explanation for it. Like, there was nothing, you know, paranormal going on. I didn't see any shadow people, uh, nothing really weird other than the fact that, you know, I couldn't move. And I recognized it as sleep paralysis, so I just, you know, waited for it to pass. But my question for you is, why is it always fear? Um, Why not? I mean, I can understand being worried that you can't move, but the feeling of fear that accompanies it is just so intense. Why fear? Why not something like giddiness or sadness or, you know, another emotion? Fear just kind of seems like a sleep paralysis thing. I don't understand it. I'll, I'll go you one better. It's, it's, it's a lot more like uh, terror. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's, um, well, 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 point A, I don't think it has to be. Um, like we were talking to the caller before and, uh, you know, there's the supposition that maybe somehow it could lead to astral projection or some other heightened state of uh, conscious or subconscious. Um, but I think it's just scary. You know, you can't move. You're there. You're in your bed. You're in this vulnerable position. You know, you're, 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 you're asleep. It's a time when you don't want to be bothered or, you know, attacked, you know, cause you're, you can't defend yourself uh, and you're being attacked and you're being attacked by something that you can't fight back. Um, so you're just the fear is going to be there. The fear is just going to naturally happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's any more complicated than that. Um, but I think that if it happens over and over, you can be aware of it, and I think you can fight that fear. And you can either call upon a higher power, or you can find some kind of inner strength that will help you fight it. Well, uh, I I appreciate the call. Always good to hear from you, Sunshine. Um, She said something, you know, that really caught my ear, which was, uh, this is not, this isn't exactly paranormal, she said. Uh, But I think it is. I I think it is because there's always an element of uh, another being that's there, whether it be the night hag or uh, whether it be a, a shadow person or any variation thereof or the hat man or what have you, or even yeah. uh, a lot of people who experience sleep paralysis uh, report alien abduction experiences. So even it might be the grave oh, sure, yeah. or, you know, whatever alien species uh, is going to come and visit you in the night. So I think then th- this is just... An idea. This is just my own speculation here, but I think that's why the fear comes in. the The abject 
pure naked terror comes in because there's a clear sense that something else is in the room with you. If it was just, wow, I opened my eyes and I can't move. I'm stuck in my body. When is this going to pass? That's one thing. But you always feel like I've never heard a story about sleep paralysis that didn't also involve some other kind of creature in the room uh, not known to this earth. Right. And I would say I've never heard of a sleep paralysis story, at least an initial one, that wasn't scary. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's somebody else there, and there's and, and there's just this natural fear that comes on. Yeah, they're all terrifying. Um, so I think I think that fear and terror is just built in. I mean, they don't call it night terror for nothing. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, they're right. Uh, let us proceed uh, over to the phones once again. You're on the air with Adam Bolger. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Heather. Good evening, Adam. This is Mike Hi. Montana. Um, Adam, I wanted to ask you, how do I break the cycle of a recurring nightmare. Uh, it's been going on for a long, long, long time. <laughs> it depends on the nightmare. Tell me about it. Uh, well, it sort of starts out as a nightmare that leads to uh, an out-of-body experience that also leads to a uh, telepathic vision that kind of led to reality. <laughs> I would like you to be a little bit more off. specific than that. Well, it was a, a vision of a... It was... I, I had a dream. Started the dream. It was out of my body for... Uh, when I fell asleep, I guess. Came out of my body. Witnessed... Saw... Uh, some a crash, and then a plane crash or a car crash. No, well, a bunch of motorcycles that had crashed, and okay, the the one person that got up from that looked at me, and at that point, I saw a vision of a driver in his car, uh, just driving. Uh-huh. And we were passing them, and the driver got scared, hit his brakes. Uh, when I looked to my left, because uh, I'm looking out to the passenger window in the front seat, and I look to my left, I see a flash of light. But I wake up because my mom's yelling at me and get up, you know, it's time to get ready, stuff, you know, going on. And uh, in reality, 45 minutes later, I'm in a car crash. But the the strange thing is I see the man that was in the vision just before the crash, just like it was about to happen. I knew it was going to happen. I grabbed the door strap, and it happened. And uh, So you had this dream before a real car crash that you experienced? Oh, yeah. Killed my brother. Oh, my God. So it so and you how often do you have this dream? I would say it's been over a thousand times in forty years. Wow! Do you have it every night? No, not every okay. night. Okay, okay. It, it's only only when I think about family or my brother or you know something like that. And I'd imagine that's quite often. Once in a while. 
Mm. All right. And he wants to break the cycle. Is it possible to break the cycle with a, a traumatic dream like that? I think it's possible. I, I mean, the that's the good news. The good news is that it's possible. The bad news is that there's no one-size-fits-all solution for how to do that. Um, I mean, you could research and, and try to explore lucid dreaming, and maybe just the, the awareness of being in the dream will be able to help you redirect it and take control of the scenario. Mm-hmm. Or just, you know, see it in a different light. Um, no, that sounds about right, actually, because this is what I've heard from, from people who talk about lucid dreaming, is that if you, if you have a recurring nightmare or just a very recurring disturbing dream, that you can learn to become lucid, and then you're kind of wrapping your hands around the handlebars and and taking control of the situation, and then you can change it. You can change the movie to be anything you want. Uh, I know this is probably going to sound wild to you, Mike, uh, in Montana, but you could get to a point where you prevent the crash. And maybe that would... You'd have to try a few things, but I think lucid dreaming um, is the ticket for that. Um, because I'll tell you why. I have a personal experience with that. I used to have a recurring dream. It was very much a nightmare. Um, and thank you again, Mike, for the call. Uh, and, and I want you to listen to this. Um, I had this dream often uh, as a teenager. And what happened is uh, it was just, it was very stark. There's not a lot of details. I'm not going to bore you with this. It was just me in an endless blackness walking on a glass floor. And in the dream, I would just walk and walk and walk and be kind of shouting in the distance, is anybody there? And of course, there was never anybody there. And I had this dream over and over and over again for years, I don't know, five, six years, it seemed like an eternity. So, um, so then I did talk to a dream interpreter one time uh, in college. And she said, uh, she told me about lucid dreaming. And this is why I got uh, curious about lucid dreaming. And I did end up taking control of that dream. And when I had it again, now this took a few tries, but it was possible when I had the dream again, Oh, I think it was my seventh or eighth try. I did end up taking control of the dream, and all it took was me uh, saying, well, I have a flashlight, and down in my hand, I noticed I had a flashlight, and I started shining the light around, and I kept doing that every time I had the dream, and eventually it stopped. So that Adam brought up lucid dreaming as a possible solution to that, I think there's there's something to that. Um only because I tried it once. Now, my dream, my nightmare was nothing like Mike in Montana's. But I think the you could apply the same principle to it and possibly take control and take the dream in a different direction. Yeah, I think that's possible. I think also, um, you know, our waking lives often inform our dreams. And as he, you know, goes through, um, as he deals with his grief while he's awake, you know, uh, that's probably going to affect his dream as well. Mm-hmm. So it might just be the, you know, it's, it's kind of crummy, but the healing factor of time 
could just make it for a better dream. Mm, yeah, it could. It could. And I and I really think that if you put the effort into learning how to lucid dream, he could change the tone of that. It, like I said, it does take multiple tries, but it can be done. And back to the phones. You're on the air with Adam Bulger. Welcome to the show. Hello? Hello. Hello? Is anybody home? Anybody on the line? All right. Well, you're not there, and I don't have time to wait for you. So let's go to North American Skype. You're on the air. Welcome to the program. Hello. Hello. Hi, Heather. Well, good evening. How are you tonight? It's been quite a night, sir. Yes, it has been. Uh, I want to say hello to Adam as well, and uh, I just want to say, like, you know, I've I've actually had a life of. Uh, this is Dwayne in Terrace, by the way. Uh, Hi, Dwayne. Uh, I've had a life of uh, a lot of um, sleep paralysis. And, uh, you know, like through my teenage years, it used to freak the heck out of me because I would, uh, you know, suddenly be in the state where I can't move. I can't, I, I can look around the room, but I can't move at all. And I'd be trying to call it to my mom and I'm mumbling. And uh, eventually, sometimes if I mumble loud enough, she would hear me. And the moment she would come in the room, open the door, like I, I could see her opening the door and turning on the light, and suddenly I was released hmm. from this thing that uh, was keeping me like in this paralysis state. And uh, I can never explain it. You know, like, you know, uh, the one thing I remember specifically is that I would get this sort of buzzing in my ear. And I think that's one one of the things that is 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 commonly stated with uh, sleep paralysis. You get the buzzing in your ear, and then suddenly it's like you can't move. And uh, but like, can I say, you describe like, the sound of the buzzing? It would just be it, like in my ear, be like a sort of a bzzz. Okay. Was it like a television yeah. static, or more like a um, like a beehive kind of buzz? Uh, I'd say more like a beehive sort of okay. buzz. And uh, like I say, I would that it would it would slowly sort of silently come into my ear, and as it came into my ear, suddenly I couldn't move. And uh, the moment somebody interacted with me, it was gone. Interesting. Huh. Really, okay. really interesting. Uh, Adam, any thoughts on that? Have you heard this before? Is this common? Well, um. I mean, it's not uncommon. What I'm curious about is, so you said these happened, this happened to you while you were a teen. Um, did, did it stop? Uh, it doesn't happen to me uh, as much as it used to. It still happens to me once in a while nowadays. Like uh, the last time it happened to me might have been like maybe a year ago. Okay. And, you know, I'm in my 40s now. So, but, yeah. it, you know, by no means does it happen uh as much as it used to, more more so when I was in my teens. Okay. And so it, it would stop, would it always stop with your mother interrupting it? Well, as soon as somebody would sort of interact, you know, like okay, as soon as somebody okay. would sort of like acknowledge that I was going through this, hearing me mumbling or whatever, trying to make a noise, then suddenly it would stop. Right. Sure. So, some, so somebody was able to intrude on it and, and break the spell. Right, that's what he that's what he was saying. Yeah. Okay. All right, well that's I think that's important. Um 
No, I mean the the noise thing is very interesting to me. Is I, I mean, I'm always very interested in sounds. I, I, I've never heard it described as a buzzing, so I'm a little bit hung up on that. But, um, but I don't have any real conclusions to draw from that. Well, that's, I'm glad that it's not as intense as it was when you were a teen. Well, um, I will add this: that、uh, those who do speak about out of body experiences. Describe the same sound, and they say that is the sound that you hear right before you go out of your body. So maybe there is some sort of tie-in here、um, that we just don't know everything about yet. It's possible. It's we haven't mapped、possible. out every part of the human experience yet. Certainly, there's some blank space. Exactly, and what a way to end the program!、Uh, your website is mrbolger.com, and that's, that's M-I-S-T-E-R-Bolger.com.、Right. And if anybody wants to know、uh, the article that inspired this program tonight, it's at vanwinkles.com. The sudden and unexplained sleep deaths that inspired Freddy Krueger.、Uh, thank you so much, Adam, for one hell of a night tonight. <laughs> Thanks, Heather. You write any other articles、uh, on this phenomenon and. On sleep paralysis, you're welcome to come back on the program. Well, thank you so much, and sweet dreams, everybody. <laughs> you beat me to it. Well, we're going to add to those nightmares tomorrow night with Steph Young, and after that, it will be the GIS. So, everybody, Halloween week continues, and listen to what the man said. Sweet dreams. As the world we live in. Are we heeding all the signs? Have we lost our intuition? Are we running out of time? Midnight in the desert, and we're listening. Ooh, we're listening.